Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vanden. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 130. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is John. And this is Stella. And we are bringing the latest comic book news and comic book reviews from the weeks of January 12th through February 1st. We have a total of seven books we'll be covering on this episode, and I promise you this is the very last episode. We will be having so many books and be a week behind, at least until there's five weeks in a month. With that being said, because uh, we are covering three weeks' worth of books and news, there is a decent amount of news to get into before we go over to the books, so let's just jump straight into comic news. The very first thing we've got is on January 13th, it was announced that John Lehman, who has been writing Detective Comics, uh, we knew that he left Detective Comics, and it was said that the reason being was because he was going to be working on Batman Eternal, but as it was announced on January 13th, Lehman actually wrote to Bleeding Cool and explained the reason why he was leaving Batman Eternal. Um, as it turns out, there's no scandal the whole reason he stopped working on Detective Comics was to write a different book that he's been working on, and that he wanted to be able to write Batman Eternal, but there's just not a lot of time. He's not a very fast writer, and the schedule does not permit him to be a slow writer. So he's off the book, and we'll just jump to the other part. It was announced on January 24th that Kyle Higgins, who's leaving Nightwing, will actually be working on Batman Eternal. So it's a hypothetical thought, but I would assume that with Lehman leaving the book and them announcing Higgins on the book so late in the game, that Higgins is actually taking Lehman's spot. I don't know if it was always planned like that, as far as Higgins coming on to Eternal anyway, because he was going to be off Nightwing, but that's that's the lineup right now for Batman Eternal. We also know that Batman Eternal will be coming out in April. Uh, it was solicited. The first four issues of the series were solicited for April. They don't specifically say who's writing this first four books, but I believe there was an interview that Scott Snyder did that mentioned that uh, the first story was actually Layman's story. So Layman is getting a story in Batman Eternal, but he's off of it after this first story that's happening in the book. I really appreciate that he said, you know, there's no bad blood. And I definitely hope that's the case just because of, I'm getting a bit bored of all these stories about how bad DC editorials are to their staff. And, you know, if it's just, you know, he's telling the story he wants to tell and then leaving because he's got other commitments and that's, that's fine. I, I know he's writing Chew, which apparently, um, over at Image, which apparently has been fairly inconsistent as in coming out. So I guess, like you said, he's a slow writer and needs uh, that time to dedicate to do that. But having said that, I, I never really think he reached his full potential on Detective, so I'm not overly sad to see him go, especially as it's kind of by choice. I'm also happy. I, I think mainly of all those news stories, I'm just happy to know that there wasn't anything bad going on with Layman uh, surrounding that, because I think when a writer or an artist or a team of creators sort of hops off a book, we all of a sudden leap to this negative uh, assumption that something must have happened. There must have been some sort of disagreement. And 
I mean, it, it's just from experience because the majority of, I would say like, you know, nine out of 10 of the things that have happened has been negative. Uh, so it is great that he's come on it and said, you know, there wasn't anything about that. So I'm glad that that was cleared up and a more positive air has been brought back into DC Comics. Yes. You know, the one thing I have to say is there has been a ton of stuff happening at DC as far as the editorial stuff and talk, you know, talk about how the creators have had problems with the editorial. And for the most part, we haven't actually heard a whole lot of stories regarding the actual, the straight bat books that we cover here on this, this podcast. Uh, some of the books that we've covered on the point five cast have had issues, but for the most part, we haven't really heard a whole lot of problems dealing with specifically the bat books. Yes, there's, you know, creators that leave, but you don't really hear anything about the creators who are leaving the bat books as far as, you know, they're leaving because editorial is too difficult to, to withstand. Um, I'm going to kind of jump around with the rest of the news because I, I want to talk all about Batman Eternal before we get into some of the other news. Also, in relation to Batman Eternal, on January 16th, the solicitations for Batman Eternal were exclusively released on IGN before the wide release of them. And it was mentioned that, starting with issue 4, Dustin Wen will be joining Jason Fabic as another artist on Batman Eternal. Now, this is kind of interesting because Dustin Wen, we know, has been... He has worked on many different bad projects, but the one he's been working on consistently for the last two years or so has been Batman Little Gotham. And we know that March is the last issue, and a lot of people were wondering, well, where's Dustin Wayne going to go? Here he is. We all knew that Jason Fabic wasn't going to be the only artist on Batman Eternal. There was bound to be somebody else. Fabic is a good artist, as we've seen in the pages of Detective Comics but I doubt that he could pump out four books per month every single month. It's just be impossible. To this point, we still don't know specifically who will be on each individual issue. We know once the solicitations did get a wide release on January 21st, which seemed a week later than normal, but I'm guessing that was because of the fifth Wednesday of January, it specifically does say who the art is going to be by. Fabic is the artist listed for the first three issues, and Dustin Wen is the artist listed for issue four. But as far as the writers, it seems a little odd, be specifically because, for whatever reason, the writers are listed all five of them. Scott Snyder, James Taney IV, John Lehman, Ray Fox, and Tim Seeley. They're listed for every single one. Well, we know that's not actually the case. I almost feel as if the reason why that's going to happen is so that Scott Snyder's name can be plastered on the front cover on every single issue so that people go buy it. I'm not saying that because, you know, I've got anything against Scott Snyder, but we've seen multiple times in the past where somebody else will be writing something with Scott Snyder, and Scott Snyder has said himself in interviews that, you know, all he did was plot this issue, but somehow his name gets that top billing on the front cover of the, of the comic. We know, based off the structure that has been described by Snyder in the past, that each writer is writing three-issue story arcs, we can assume that each reissue story arc is going to have an assigned artist, which we could also then assume that the artists are going to be paired with a specific writer. That's just my guess. The fact that Layman's story is, in fact, the first story, and Fabic is the artist, well, they work together on Detective Comics, so that's not unforeseen. I'm interested to know who Dustin Wen will be working with. I almost want to say it could possibly be Tinian, based off of some of the stuff that Tinian has hinted at, of what he could be working on, the fact that he mentioned that his story is going to involve Stephanie Brown. Dustin went on uh, Stephanie Brown would make a lot of sense. 
I don't see Dustin Wynn doing a lot of Tim Seeley or Ray Fox just because of the type of stories that they're known for. But then again, they could do something completely different. Definitely happy that Dustin Wynn is back, especially in the main title. I'm excited to be reading him on a, I was going to say monthly basis, but I'm not really sure what kind of basis. It's going to be interesting to see how they balance out the artist because, I mean, you said, like, you imagine it's going to be, you know, writer and artist teams. So they do like three issues and stuff or whatever each. But in that case, like, that would have to be really planned out in advance for the art to get done. So I'm imagining it's going to end up being more of a, there's a few artists and they kind of do an issue each, which in that case, you'd kind of want them to be of a similar style so that it kind of flows a bit better than such a drastic change. But it'll be interesting to see how that's handled. Regardless, I mean, so far I'm happy with both the artists on the book. Yeah, I think consistency (laughs) is always awesome. And and that's certainly something I would like. So it'll be interesting to see how it all comes together. I, uh, you know, it's said, you know, don't go to church because of a particular pastor, you know, and that you like the pastor, right? And, And I guess maybe in the same way, you're not supposed to read a comic just because you like the person. But uh, I guess I, I fail on both of those accounts. And there, there are two people that I just really respect them as people. And, and Dustin Nguyen is one of those people. And he was just such a, a great person to, to meet and talk with, even though I was very shifty when I met him because I kept like coming to his booth because I kept remembering things to get from him. So I guess all in all, it's just great to have him on a book. And like uh, I will love and, and, and look forward to uh, supporting him. And I think you're absolutely right, Dustin, that hopefully he's on you know that stephanie brown one because i think his light style and just the fun that he brings to it and and he was doing a lot of the covers for brian q miller's run on backroll so i think it really fits and so that gives me hope that if his art matches the tone of what tinian is writing that perhaps we're going to get the stephanie brown that that we really love all right, and then we get into a bunch of creator changes and books being canceled. So we knew this was going to happen with Batman Eternal around the corner. We knew that there was a number of titles that were going to get eliminated from the lineup. It was already revealed previously that Batman the Dark Knight was coming to a close. We talked about that before a previous episode. But this time around, as it got closer to the solicitations as actually releasing, We found out a number of different things relating to some of the creators changing and some of the other information. So first off, on January 14th, it was announced that in April, which happens to be the next five Wednesday month, there's a number of Bat books that will be getting annuals. Batgirl, Teen Titans, and Batwoman will all get annuals in April. The interesting thing is Batgirl in the past has had an annual, so has Teen Titans. Batwoman, this will be the first annual that that series has received. I'm not specifically sure why they chose these specifically. Now, Teen Titans, there's a little bit related to that, specifically because it was announced that Teen Titans is actually coming to an end. Teen Titans is ending in April, and the last issue will, in fact, be that annual. Shocking. It will have the main issue come out in April, and then the end of the series will actually be the annual. If you've listened to the Point Five cast, when Ed and I were talking about Teen Titans... It has not been very good. We didn't really enjoy a whole lot of that book, and the characterization of Tim Drake in the book is not something that any Bat fan would really take to reading and say, this is awesome. So, you know, is it a shame that the book's being canceled? Yeah, in some ways it is, because I think that, you know, for the most part, 
once Teen Titans ends, there's only so many characters in that book that will still get attention in other books. Obviously, Red Robin will get attention in another book. Uh, Superboy has his own series, but a lot of these characters, you know, well, a lot of the current lineup is actually characters that came from the, there was that series that Raven was a part of, that series got canceled, and then half the, the lineup from that book came over to Teen Titans, and now Teen Titans is being canceled. So, there's not a whole lot of teen characters left in the DC Universe that are getting a lot of focus. It's really down to Superboy and, and Red Robin, um, and we know, and the only reason we know Red Robin will get a focus is because we've been told that as far as he'll have some sort of focus in Batman Eternal, much more so than we've seen in the past two and a half years of the New 52. So, you know, it's a shame that the series is coming to an end, but it's not really that unexpected specifically because sales have been dropping significantly for a while now because it's just not that interesting, especially to myself. Is Tinian writing? It Was he currently on that book? No, he's on okay. Red Hood and the Outlaws. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. I just hope that this leads to Tim Drake being more involved in the Batman universe, but it's probably more likely that he's going to be kind of swept under the rug and forgotten about. Yeah, you know, I I was kind of enjoying Teen Titans, I think, when it started coming out initially, but then I, my interest sort of waned, so I guess I'm right there with the rest of, of the world. I, I certainly agree with Joe. I hope that this brings Tim Drake more in the fold and he's less like... Batwoman per se and just having his own book and not really interacting with the world and maybe this is a, a good sign that there'll be some reparations in the Batman family and maybe it'll become a family again I do at least have to make a dig at the Batgirl annual that I'm hoping it's actually a Batgirl annual and not a Catwoman annual like the last time so we can only hope. Alright so next up on January 17th Kyle Higgins posted on his private Facebook page that issue number 29, which is releasing in March, will actually be his final issue on the series. Um, he talks about how it's been great working with Dick Grayson and that he's going to be still working on Batman Beyond 2.0 as well as a new uh, creator-owned series over at Image. But he specifically said that he, he enjoyed working with Dick Grayson and that he looks at his time on Nightwing and smiles. And he says that Dick Grayson made him a better writer. Now, obviously, you know, for the most part, we've enjoyed Nightwing. Consistently has above-average scores. There's been very few issues that have gotten low scores from us. Higgins leaving the book is kind of a surprise, only because of the news that was released less than a week later when the solicitations released, which is that the Nightwing series is being canceled as of April. Both Nightwing and Suicide Squad will be ending in April. Suicide Squad, we don't really cover here or on the Point Five cast, but... We've dealt with it a couple times here and there when it deals with news, and it's had points where it's tied into some of the, the Batman universe events, per se. But the most interesting thing is, Higgins is leaving after issue 29, Nightwing's ending at issue number 30. Before we speculate as to why the series is ending, I'd like to try to figure out, hmm, why would Higgins leave one month before the issue ends? And then the craziest thing about it is the person who will be writing the last issue of Nightwing is James Ting in the fourth. 
It's a little fr- number one. I think this was one of the more shocking books to be canceled for us. Uh, I think when that hit, everyone was sort of in a in a tizzy. Uh, all my friends who are you know comic readers, and and I have a really good friend who who loves Nightwing, and this more so than you know the Dark Knight, which we have been recently complaining about. That that was a bummer that they canceled. I think it's even. Well, number one, I think, yeah, it's been, it's had above average ratings. It's not been, you know, a, a great example of comics and everything, but it was great that it was so different that he was starting his own status quo, getting his own sort of cast of characters. He was in a diff- different city, making a name of his own. And, and I feel like it was just a really different book than what we've seen before. So that's a bummer. I thought it was so weird. What is going on? Why would you leave, you know, the issue before? That is like something I I think that will leave or get pushed off. Who knows? And I know Donovan had said something like, well, this is similar to Chuck Dixon leaving the Robin run before everything sort of hit the fan there with, uh, was it RIP, I guess, at that point in time? So I don't know if this has anything to do with Forever Evil. And Higgins sort of wanted off of it, uh, knowing what was going to happen. And then Tinian came on, followed up that final issue, and then that'll sort of bring us into this new status quo. So th- this sort of gives me the willies, like something bad is in fact going to happen if the main writer has suddenly dropped off the book one issue to go. I mean, it could be that Higgins kind of finishes story by 29, and then number 30, like we had with, I think, Fabian Nicieza doing the last issue of Batman before the New 52, kind of like a reflective of the whole run by another author potentially yeah i mean that's entirely possible the weird thing about it is the fact that so we have the solicitation for issue 30 the solicitation for nightwing number 30 which is going to be written by james tinian it says the bat family is forced to face the brutal aftermath of forever evil but after everything they've been through can they stand together so it really seems as if the for whatever reason because there's no other titles, I guess, as of right now, they have to somehow link the events of Forever Evil to whatever they're going to do with Batman Eternal. They told Tinian, here's what we need, and he's wrote a story to try to link it together. Now, obviously, this adds fuel to the fire of the idea of the blonde character in that Thanksgiving image that that is, in fact, Dick Grayson. It also plays into that image that Dustin Wen did as a... Uh, concept art for the new character that will appear in Batman number 28 that had the blue Nightwing colors, but was clearly a female and had a mohawk. What I've seen around online is that a lot of people are just thinking that there will be a Nightwing, but it's going to be Harper Rowe. She's not going to be a Robin like everyone thought. Instead, she'll be Nightwing, and because it's a girl, no one will associate it with Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson will take on some new mantle, whatever it may be. I will say that most likely Dick Grayson's not going to have his own title for a while because if he doesn't have a book to, you know, tell the story of himself becoming this new character, it's going to happen in the pages of Batman Eternal. Knowing that Batman Eternal is going to, they're, they, they've said multiple times that they are planning on 52 issues of this title. So that means a full year's worth of stories from this title. That being said, there's not a whole lot of Bat books that are just going to spring up out of nowhere during the middle of the run of Batman Eternal. If anything, Batman Eternal will run its course, do the 52 issues, 
be over and done with, and then we'll probably see a bunch of different books spawn from Batman Eternal. Possibly a Dick Grayson in his new role. Possibly a Stephanie Brown. Who knows, there could be a bunch of other characters that were introduced that could also get their own series. It's, they're probably looking at it as, well, this is a weekly series. We can We can really... Based off of the stories that are being told and how they're broken up, we can really try to gauge who has a significant amount of fans in order to give them their own series. So I think that that's what's probably going to happen. We're not going to see any more Bat books added to the mix, at least for the time being. Now, that's not to say the rest of the DC Universe isn't going to have a bunch of books added to the mix. But I think for the most part, the Batman Universe is going to stay the way it is as far as books without any... You know, not including any one-off mini-series that they decide to throw in the mix here and there. I think for the most part, we're going to have the same set of books at least for the next year plus, just because, well, from April till next April, I think we're going to have the same set of books. Yeah, I think this is all kind of like a kind of publicity stunt type thing just to tie in with Forever Evil and that whole kind of, oh, you know, he's, he's going to die or is he? I mean, it would be amazing if it was a double bluff and he did actually die at the end of it but I'm still certain that they won't do that. But I am intrigued to see kind of the fallout of Forever Evil and Dick Grayson and what happens there. So they're doing a good job with that. Yeah, as for what he's going to do after, I mean, I have no idea. All right, so with that, the last bit of news we have for this episode comes just on February 1st, the last, or the, it comes on January 31st, uh, the last day of the week before the end of the the time we're covering here on the podcast. And the news is that Mike Marks, the Batman group editor, who has been the group editor for the past five years, is leaving DC, and he is actually going to be heading over to Marvel. Marks actually made a name for himself at Marvel by being the X-Men group editor, left Marvel about five years ago and came over to DC to do the Batman books, and I would say he's actually done a pretty decent job with running the books and having coherent things in, in the midst of all the different books. I don't know if it, if it happens in the other DC books because there's not that many that I read, but, uh, I, I noticed when he was editing books, I remembered that he was always, he was the first one that started throwing editor's notes into the books, similar to what they did back in the day that we didn't get before he was around. Um, and then slowly all of a lot of the other editors for some of the other books that we cover on the podcast slowly had editor's notes as well. But I remember he was doing it before, even before the new 52, because his initials were always MM or Mike that he would have the editor's notes. That being said, we had a chance to interview Mike Martz. If you head over to the uh, Batman Universe interviews, it was a significant amount of time ago. It was almost five years ago that we interviewed him, but he was kind enough to let us do an interview with him. He talked all kinds of stuff related to his job, how he got to be where he was, and, you know, kind of the stuff that he dealt with with the Batman books. Um, it was a really good interview. Uh, it was actually one of the interviews we did very early in the history of the BatmanUniverse.net and a lot of the podcasts. So I was very grateful for having the opportunity to interview him. It'll be interesting to see who takes his spot. We know that as of February, he immediately went over to Marvel. A lot of people are saying that this has to do with the fact that DC announced last fall that they're moving the entire operation of DC Comics to California between this year and next year, and a lot of people are attributing his move to Marvel because he was not wanting to move to California. 
Now, obviously, I'm sure he's not going to go out and say, you know, hey, I'm not going, you know, I didn't want to go to California, so I decided to go go back tomorrow. I'm sure that's not going to be the way it's going to come across, but that probably had something to do with his decision. I'm sure he's probably not going to be the last editor, but he is the biggest editor that we deal with that will probably uh, be not staying at DC once the move actually happens. All right, so with that, that is all the news we have. We're going to jump straight into our books. As I mentioned, we have seven books to cover, and we're going to jump into the first one, Damien, Son of Batman, number four. Okay, Damien, Son of Batman, number four, the final issue, written and drawn by Andy Kubert. The issue opens with Damien, mid-fight, trying to rescue Bruce from the imposter Joker. Roughly a dozen pages in of relentless fighting, Joker is finally ready to kill Bruce, but Damien jumps in to stop him. Despite his promise, Damien attempts to kill Joker, ripping his stomach open with his gauntlets. Damien carries Bruce to safety, and it's revealed that Joker isn't dead. Until he is, because the real Joker shows up and shoots him in the head. We cut back to the Batcave where Alfred the Cat is telling Damien that the criminals are losing respect for Batman, and that he might need to start killing again. Damien is concerned that Dick's killer is still out there, and is determined to find him. We then cut to a gas station robbery. The robbers start a bloodbath, but Batman comes to the rescue, smiling when someone finally refers to him by his new moniker. The end. So yeah, I guess the first thing is, um, were you satisfied with this miniseries? Do you know what the point of it was? Was everything kind of wrapped up nicely at the end, or was it frustrating and confusing and annoying? You know... Okay, going into the series, I really wasn't sure what the point of the series was. Knowing that Damien is dead in normal continuity, I really wasn't sure what the point was. We were never told this is part of continuity or outside of continuity. I think specifically, we were never told that. We were just, you know, it it was a Damien story because there's people who like Damien, so we're going to make a Damien story. Do I think that it... It was, it did its job. Well, it's hard to say because I'm not sure what its job was. If I have to guess, I would say that the whole reason they told this story was to tell us the story of how Damien becomes Batman and goes from the role of Robin to the role of Batman because that's really the only thing I got out of the end of this story was, okay, we had Robin or Damien as Robin in the beginning of the story and at the end of the story, he's Batman. And, you know, that, other than that, I don't really see anything else. You know, Joker's somehow back in the story, even though he was mentioned to be dead at the beginning of the story. Um, Joker's back, and his face isn't torn off. So, again, leads us to believe that this isn't in continuity, or maybe it is, and he had... You know, there's so many different possibilities. Was it wrapped up cleanly? Mm, no, because it left me with a bunch of questions that I really expected to be answered. I think the point was, in fact, to have us see how Damien becomes Batman. And, I, you know, I think in the beginning of this whole series, it was unclear as to what universe this sort of took place in. And, and I think now we can say that this is, in fact, you know, an Elseworld story. But I feel like it in my heart, it still connects to the Batman 666, whatever timeline that is, which I feel still has ties to our current, you know, New 52 t- timeline. You know, there were points along the way I wasn't sure, you know, is this a worthwhile story or not. But I think that at the heart of it, you really saw the heart of uh, who Damien is as a character because throughout his entire 
life, I would say, and more so in Tomasi's Batman and Robin run, really saw this struggle, this internal struggle that he had between being the person that he was bred to be, which is, you know, this, this, this killer, I mean, if you, it, to put it bluntly, or to be, you know, the person and, and the man that his father was trying to raise him to be. And I think that in the beginning half of this particular story, you see that killer and that killer instinct, which is the reason why there was such a schism between his father and himself. And But then he really, I, I loved, I thought it was just a beautiful change that he really tries to make a conscious effort to become a new person. And I think this was something that we saw in the Batman and Robin run. And so he, yes, he still got this sort of violent instinct with him, but he's... He's trying to overcome that, and I think definitely saw that in issue number three with the bus scene and stopping holding his punches a little bit before killing. And then you have this last little this this issue. I think you, it really gets at the fact that even though there is this problem that he has with his father, just that they don't agree on everything, you do really see that love, and I think it's really there, and and it was really potent not only in the art but what he was saying and and thinking, just fighting for him. I don't really understand, you know, the Joker popping up and even though he was supposed to be dead. But I guess that's just Joker, right? Of course, he's not going to accept any substitutes and he's going to somehow go on living. So I guess that's believable in the end. And I think of that awesome Wonder Woman direct-to-video film. And, you know, you've got the, the main plot line is obviously wrapped up. And then at the very end, you've got Cheetah. And then, you know, Diana Prince, is, she drops her groceries and then she goes to work. And I loved how it ended here. I, I don't think things were wrapped up at all. I think that it leaves enough open that there could be a potential for more storytelling. It could bleed into, you know, a, a bigger book or, you know, a different universe. For instance, the cat is still there. We still have no idea what that's about. You know, he's looking at the screen. But I just love the fact that then there's a, a hostage situation in the final two pages and, and he goes to work and he finally sort of puts on that full identity, you know, and says, I am Batman. Another tie, uh, or loose that we didn't see is about the priest. Um, because we, we believe that it's Gordon, but you don't really know for sure. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, it was simple in its purpose. I think it was to show how Damien becomes Batman in whatever universe this is. I think it gets to that. I think it leaves it open enough to leave us satisfied, obviously, but uh, to give the potential. And I think that there is a lot of uh, beauty in this story and showing the struggle, the internal struggle of Damien, the a- external struggle between him and his uh, father. And, and I think it, it worked really well, especially in the last two issues. I think the first two was a bit of a struggle, but three and four I really enjoyed. I think in terms of, this, okay, this is a story showing how Damien becomes Batman, then that works. I hadn't really, I guess, hadn't looked at it that way, but looking at it that way, then yeah, that works. But I think with all of these other things, all of these questions, like for instance, the Alfred cat, like that strange nurse, was it the Joker that came and gave Batman medicine? Was it, uh, who's the priest? I mean, it kind of, you never get the end of the, the Dick Grayson's death storyline because it says, you know, the killer's still out there. I don't think that the imposter Joker did it or was the only one to be involved. The real Joker shows up at the end. I mean, I don't really care enough to be concerned with it. It's just, I, I don't want answers. And so I don't care that they didn't explain the science behind 
this cat or like, you know, is it something in Damien's head or is it a real possession or, but there was no closure to it, which I think is the problem. It feels really open at the end of it, which I guess is maybe this was testing the waters for a potential sequel or, or another short series or, or an ongoing. But I think that the story, I guess, was there, but I don't think it was particularly well done. I, I do like Andy Kubert's art, and I think in this one, I mean, some of the earlier ones, it was a bit exaggerated, but in this issue, I, re- I did really like it. But I, I, there's always, there generally is a, a kind of, you're normally good at writing your art, and there are obvious exceptions, but I think Andy Kubert is definitely one to fall in the, you know, he's a good artist, but not necessarily a good writer. So I don't really, I wouldn't care to see a sequel or him carry on this storyline. But um, I kind of felt to me as if it was a, you know, this is one of our people. You know, he's worked with us for ages. He wants to do this. Let's let him do it. So, you know, fair enough for that. And I think people have enjoyed it, but I, I don't think that it was particularly good overall. Yeah. The first couple issues seemed like they were taking a hit with the art because he was also writing. I will agree that this issue was, the, as far as the art goes, the issue was a lot better than those first two issues. The story itself, there, it's one of those things where I don't know, like, I chalk this up to, like, these weird things because we've had so many different artists that have worked on bat books in the past that somehow end up writing a bat book. Um, we've had Tony Daniel, we've had Dustin Wen. There's a lot of artists that turn into writers at DC. And they're, they're normally writing characters that they, that they were drawing prior to writing them. That being said, some of, like, Dustin Wen stuff, that was, that was, that was good with, uh, Batman Little Gotham. Neil Adams, on the other hand. Yeah, Neil, Neil Adams is one that I, I don't even really want to even go there because of how dreadfully horrible that story was. But, with this story, it, it, it harkens me back to, when Tony Daniel was writing and drawing the books, then switched to just writing the books and not, not doing any of the art where he would like do like sprinkle all this stuff in the story that wasn't necessarily necessary, just there almost as if it was, it was like there so that if someone wanted to pick it up later, they could, and they would be, you know, they would get the credit for, you know, creating that or whatever. And I, and I hate to say it, but, you know, it feels like with this story, there's a lot of stuff like that. You know, there, you know, we talked about this last episode when we talked about the, the last issue of Damien, Son of Batman, where the, you know, when we were talking about the cat, we went back and we looked at those issues of Batman Incorporated that dealt with Damien in the future, as well as the Batman issues. And the cat was, you know, the cat didn't even show up in that issue where, Damien dies saving Gotham, that the cat wasn't there. Damien wasn't talking to anybody over the intercom or anything. But then again, I didn't notice in this issue if he was talking, you know, over the headset to the Batcave. He was only talking to the cat when he was in the Batcave. So I'm not real sure. Maybe, I mean, and and that's a huge thing to leave wide open there is, is this... Because we've seen different stories in the past that, you know, Alfred dies and there's like an AI in the Batcave that acts as, as Alfred. And that could, that could be potentially still what it is. And it's just this AI is there in the Batcave and it just so happens that the cat's always around in the Batcave too. But we don't know that. 
We have, you know, there's a lot of things that were left open. I mean, like, there was so much focus on this priest for for multiple issues. It doesn't even appear in this issue, and we don't know who he is. Why was there such a big focus? If it was just a priest, why was there so much focus on it? And the priest needing to say over and over again, oh, I knew your father, and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And it's just, I don't know, it just feels like not that he left it open for a sequel for him to do. It was almost like he left it open so that all of these things that he didn't have time to fit in the pages could be explored at some other point in time. Well, would you really, I mean, on the opposite end, would you really have wanted every question to be answered so that you were inundated with a lot of useless information? I mean, would that have fit the story? See, I'm plagued with that question all the time when I read stuff and I don't get all the answers. Oh, yeah. And... Because that happens a lot. There's a lot of books that we don't get a lot of answers, and there's a lot of stuff that's just left open and for either interpretation or possible future stories or whatever. And the thing is, I I don't necessarily need all the information, but to say, you know, to, to point out at some point, just to have like a one-off sentence about the priest, oh, it was James Gordon who was the priest, or... You know, you know, not, not to say something or like he's leaving the priest and they say, you know, Gordon might have knew my father, blah, 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 blah. Just so that way, you know, you don't have to go into all these details. We don't have to, I mean, like the priest thing just bugs me because there was, there was too much focus on it. The cat thing I can just get over because there's a bunch of different ways you can interpret it to be, but there was too much focus on the priest for it just to be left there, not answered. And then not to be focused on at all in this last issue, it's just annoying to me how, well, why do we dedicate so many pages to this priest in the past and then not say anything about the priest or give us some sort of conclusion to why the priest was so necessary to be involved in this? Like, since when has Batman or Robin, or I should say Batman or Damien ever been religious where they need to go see a priest? It would be explained perfectly if it was they were going to see somebody that they always confided in or somebody like that and it just so happens that Gordon is now a priest and that's why. There's a bunch of different ways you can explain it but the thing is that's just something where it could have been an easy thing just to explain and that wouldn't have been it. I'm not saying I needed to have every single answer but the priest thing just bugs me. The cat thing really wasn't focused on. It really just was, I mean it was focused on but it wasn't focused on in my mind to the degree Yes, the cat was always named Alfred. Alfred died in this story. So whether he got hit on the head too hard and he just has something loose, some loose bolts in his head or something, and that's why it's happening, or whether it's an AI or, you know, who knows, or whether the cat's actually talking, who knows? You know, some, some magical element possessed, it, who knows? But the thing is, I don't know, the priest thing just bugs me. And that, that's probably, that's probably the biggest reason of why I'm complaining about this is just because I really wanted to see a conclusion with that. Do I need to know, you know, how the cat's talking? No, not necessarily. I don't need to have every question answered. I don't need to know why the Joker's suddenly back and why his face isn't cut off. I don't really need to know that. Really, it just seemed like the Joker came back and there was a shot of the Joker so that Andy Kubrick could draw the Joker that he's known for instead of drawing that crazy version of the Joker. I, I agree. I think, like I said earlier, it's not so much about needing every answer. It's more kind of I want wanting closure for some of these bizarre storylines. But I do definitely agree that the priest, because it feels like it should be such an obvious thing. I feel like I should know who it is. But there's always that question about, like, why would it be 
Gordon. So I kind of, yeah, I did want that answered, but the rest of the stuff, like you said, I kind of, I wanted some kind of wrap up, which there wasn't, but I'm not upset that there aren't answers for it. Not to be the girly girl of the podcast, even though I am. And and yes, I admit I've read Twilight, but I just have to say that when I read the fourth book, it's just so rushed and like fitting everything in and tying up all the loose ends. It's very frustrating. It's not well written. So in my opinion, I think that enough was answered to give us like enough peace of mind. This is for me, I guess I shouldn't say us. Enough was answered to give me peace of mind. And there's some mystery left open in case you know, a story would would like to continue. Frankly, if another Damien Son of Batman came out, I would be interested in reading it because I enjoyed it. I would be interested in too, but I, I do want to ask you this question. What did they tie up at the end of this story? Him becoming Batman and Bruce Wayne is alive and the Joker is alive. But is the Joker being alive something they're tying up, or is it just something they're revealing at the end? A reveal, a reveal but they got rid of the other Joker. The, okay, so they got rid of a Joker that appeared at the end of the last issue, only to replace him with the real Joker. Bruce Wayne, who was dying from the beginning of the series, is now not dead. I don't know, I, I, just, I, I don't feel like any of those things... I mean, like, yes, okay, he became Batman, I feel like, yes... I said that earlier, I've, I said that that's what I thought the, the point of the story was, but all this other stuff that happened in this series just comes across as fluff when I think about it, because what was the point of it being there if the only thing we're actually tying up, at least in my mind, is that Damien becomes Batman? It just feels like, okay, well, why couldn't we focus a little bit more on other things that didn't have to leave us wondering about so many other things? All right. Damien, Son of Batman, number four. I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I will give it a two out of five batterings. <laughs> and of course, I'm going to be the Stephanie Brown of the show and give it four out of five. Wow. Well, you know, I said I liked it, and I gave you my wonderful exposition as to why. All right. Damien, Son of Batman, number four, gets a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Nightwing, number 27, written by Kyle Higgins, art by Will Conrad. The issue starts off right where the last issue ended, where Mad Hatter approaches and explains that the reason he's specifically after Mally is because that was one of his previous Alice's. Nightwing is kind of surprised by this. He looks at her and they decide to work together and call a truce. She explains that uh, most likely everyone's being controlled by the mind control elements in their hats, they all decide to go after the hats, but unfortunately that's not the way they're actually being controlled. After she sees Nightwing use the uh, Eskrima sticks, you know, she happens to pick them up and start using them herself in the exact same fashion. After uh, Mad Hatter grabs a gun and starts shooting everybody, they decide that they need to uh, duck and take cover. Uh, I guess Mad Hatter takes off as uh, all of the people who are being controlled, suddenly start to awake from their sleep. As it turns out, they were all being controlled by cell phones instead of a different type of mind control. There's an open call on all of their phones that's allowing them to be mind control. Nightwing and Malie escape with Michael and the police officer, I believe his name is Maxwell, and they get up to the roof. They leave very quickly, and we see a number of different scenes of Malie's past as a girl, as a teenager, 
as one of Mad Hatter's Alice's being shot and then waking up in a gutter full of a bunch of other Alice's. She explains to Nightwing that those are the only memories that she has left and they're just fragments, and that basically she doesn't really enjoy stealing, but she explains that the canium allows, it's not so about a fix, but it helps her get a baseline, but at the same time she thinks that the Mad Hatter is the only one who can put all the pieces back together to, to fix her, but she doesn't know that she uh, wants to be fixed. She says that she has a bunch of looks that Nightwing focuses on, tension, worry, anxiety, and fear, leading him to believe that she's actually true, that she does want to get fixed. He heads back to his apartment, only to find out that his window got locked up yet again. He comes through the front door, obviously not dressed as Nightwing, to talk to Joey, and the girl that Joey happens to be babysitting is sent down to throw a bunch of Dick's shoes into his room. Dick and Joey end up having a little fight. Dick's saying he doesn't need to be micromanaged because some of us don't want our windows shut. Some of us don't want our stuff put away. Uh, some of us just want to be there. And then Dick says, maybe I'll, I'll just have to move out. Meanwhile, the little girl that Joey happens to be babysitting comes across a loose board in Nightwing's room that reveals underneath the floor he has a container with his Nightwing costume a different Nightwing costume than the one he was wearing, even though they made a point to say he's only had one Nightwing costume. He's been wearing the same one since he came to Chicago. But it's a different one. Moving forward, we see Mad Hatter talking to the CEO of Drexler Chemical, where Drexler Chemical is actually the company is producing a lot of the chemicals that he uses in a lot of his teas, including canium. Malie and Nightwing get back together to break into Drexler Chemical to get Mad Hatter, as it turns out, Malie, she actually uh, kicks him in the back of the head so that she can go off and do what she wants. Nightwing assumes that she's going to actually kill Mad Hatter, but as it turns out, she just is actually trying to steal all of his tea because as it turns out, the tea has the chemicals in it. As he uh, goes off into the night, he hopes for the best for her, and we cut to his job as the bartender. He's talking to Michael, and Michael's explaining that he's no longer going to be the go-to man for Maxwell the cop. He believes that after having mind control done to him from Mad Hatter, he doesn't want to be under control of anybody, so he decides that he is not going to work with him anymore. Back at the apartment, we see that Dick apologizes to Joey and says, listen, maybe I haven't really been understanding. I, you know, I've noticed a couple things. Did you happen to lose your job? She explains, yes, I did lose my job, um, and she's been babysitting the little girl. The little girl's parents to come to pick up their daughter, and as it turns out, she happens to be drawing the Nightwing symbol on her iPad. Next issue, repercussions. All right, Nightwing number 27, just a couple of different things. The first one is, you know, despite the fact that we're not in Gotham City, we see Mad Hatter making an appearance here more prominently than the last issue, where, you know, for the most part, the, the villains of Gotham tend to stay in Gotham. At least that's what we're always led to believe, because Batman rarely is going to a different city to deal with a villain that's not already a worldwide villain. So it's interesting that Mad Hatters happens to be in Chicago, that the way they tie him to Chicago is the fact that he's actually, for whatever reason, coming after Malie, who he believed was dead, because that's right, he shot her and left her in a ditch with the other dead Alice's. But somehow he he's come back to Chicago, and he's there because he has a link to Drexler Chemical, which also happens to be located in Chicago. I just wanted to know your guys' thoughts on the fact that, you know, for the most part, 
since he's come to Chicago, he's been pretty detached from the entire Batman universe as far as other characters or other villains. They've had their own villains here in Chicago. What do you think about the inclusion of Mad Hatter in the story? I didn't mind it. And I guess just kind of forgot that he wasn't in Gotham because of that. Because they kind of didn't really play up the Chicago angle of it. But I think what could have been a potentially good link is if they'd linked it to Dark Knight and said, like, Mad Hatter was hiding out. Like, maybe he has this connection here, but he's hiding out in Chicago out of fear of repercussions for killing Batman's girlfriend. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I didn't mind it, but I think that because of his involvement in it, I forgot about the change in location. I feel like it was, see, now I'm going to play like the opposite of what I just said in the last half an hour, but I, I feel like uh, this was just an easy way to to tie things and connect it. And like I said in the in the news, I like that we've been trying to do something new with Nightwing and sort of keeping him separate and having him build his own status quo and his own rogues gallery. And all of a sudden we, we find this girl who happened to have Ben and Alice around the same time that, you know, we have Mad Hatter going on and the other bad books. I, I feel like that's too much of a coincidence and that, you know, too much of a forced way to, to have it connect to another bad book. I'm not opposed to it either. I think that it, it's an interesting idea they, I think that they did a good enough job of linking and to having reasons why. I don't think that it was necessarily specifically because Malia. I think he was actually probably a little surprised at the fact that she was involved. But I think it really wasn't shown that well in this issue. It was probably it was shown a little bit better in the last issue when Mad Hatter was first revealed. There was almost like a small time jump because he he at the beginning of this issue he makes a point like, oh well, that was my favorite Alice. Blah blah blah. I want her back. And it's just interesting to me because in the last issue, the, it's not really mentioned. The The real connection of why Mad Hatter's here is because of Drexler Chemical. And even though it's it's not really explained that well as to why this is the only chemical company that, you know, well, one, why this the CEO is, make, you know, working with Mad Hatter, why Mad Hatter is, this is the only way he can get the chemicals that he wants for his tea, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I don't really have a problem with that. I'll just leave it at that. I don't have a problem with Mad Hatter being in the issue. I think it's a nice connection, even if it is a loose connection to the Batman universe, just because he isn't in Gotham. We don't see him interacting with the other people within the Batman family. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the the obvious thing leading into the next issue. The title of the next issue, they're saying, well, the, the, the word that they're using to describe next issue is repercussions. Right underneath the the picture of the girl with the iPad with the symbol that she drew of the Nightwing symbol. I want to talk about just two small elements of this. Number one, they made a point when he first got to Chicago that he had no money, he had no job, and he had the one costume that he wore into Chicago. But somehow, his window being locked, he has to get undressed, pack his uniform into his backpack, but yet somehow he still has another uniform in there. That's a little weird because they, they spent way too much time explaining like the fact that he had to spend time sewing up his, his ripped uniform because he didn't have another one. They spent a lot of time in the, in the past issues talking about that, only to have another one in a floorboard that's not even locked. It's a little weird. Now, I don't know if this is the writing or if it's just the way the art's portrayed, but when uh, the girl finds it, it's clearly underneath a floorboard, and there's a box underneath. You would think that if he had a box with the uniform he was storing underneath the floorboard, 
he would at least have some sort of lock on it. That's a little, it's just weird to me that he would have a box for it, but not have a lock on it. Thoughts on what could possibly happen in the next issue dealing with this, this little girl who happens to know that Dick is Nightwing? I don't really know what's going to happen. I imagine it's going to be some kind of extortion thing, but at the same time, it really doesn't matter because we know that this is set just a few weeks before he goes back to Gotham and his identity is revealed to the whole world. So whether this has always been Carl Higgins' plan and it's kind of been ruined, I guess, you know, kind of uh, been superseded by Forever Evil or if he's just tying it in or if he's just telling this story where he's got a chance to tell a story where someone knows his identity and it actually potentially have repercussions because... In a, in a few months, you know, our time, it's all going to be out in the air anyway. I, you know, I think that she may die. And uh, just uh, perhaps there's going to be some, you know, just she's going to be very fanatic and, and, and loving Nightwing. And maybe she'll come up with some sort of costume on her own. Stop me if you've heard this story before. But he'll say no, no. And then something just, some accident is going to befall her. Maybe, uh, Tusk is going to come back and, and attack Nightwing. But uh, I think something tragic is going to happen. All right. So my thoughts on what's, what's going to happen, similar to Stella, this girl's either going to die or it's going to somehow tie into the reason of why Victor Saz is in Gotham City. And Victor Saz could be the reason of how she dies because we know that the last issue that Higgins is on, he is supposed to be bringing Zaz back to Arkham, which then ties into everything that happened with Forever Evil. Explains why Dick was in Gotham instead of Chicago. Explains why he was near Arkham during the breakout. It all explains. So I I feel as if the Mad Hatter thing, at least in this issue, is done. And the story of Malie is is over and done with now, too. It felt pretty wrapped up, at least to me, with her getting the uh, the tea and him basically saying, you know, that he hopes the best for her, but he doesn't know that he'll ever know. But the tea should last her a long while. As she stated, she didn't necessarily want to be fixed. She, she you know, she, she just wanted to be okay. So I think that somehow this is going to tie into Zaz appearing in the book, maybe in the next issue or or not, but I, I think on the same lines as Stella, this girl's probably going to die, and it's probably going to have something to do with Zaz. So with that, Nightwing number 27, I'm going to give a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. I agree, 3.5 out of 5 batterings. I'm going to pull it down a little bit and give it a 3 out of 5 batterings. Alright, and over on the website, Josh Clayton gave the book a total of four out of five batterings, so that's going to give Nightwing number 27 a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number 27. Batman the Dark Knight 27, Angel of Darkness, another silent issue to connect to the previous story or issue, rather. Writer Greg Hurwitz, artist Alberto Ponticelli, and color Sean Kalitz. Batman doesn't last very long in the cage that he was put in, in the Lion Tamer, you know, Haley Circus, as he shreds the net that was holding him and uses the whip that some fool left atop the cage. And he whips the whip, and uh, he snatches some sort of tool that acts as like a reverse vice. I don't know if you know what that tool is. 
Yeah, it's it's called a uh, a jack. Yeah, a car jack. Oh, okay. So he uses his jack and he widens the space between the bars, and obviously he gets out though we don't see it, and he somehow sets a plane to kamikaze its way through a hangar. And it it ends up exploding and taking some bad guys with it, and then Batman six the remaining bad guys in a cage, which is ironic and and funny all at the same time. At the Batcave, Batman finds another place that's exploiting illegal citizens, uh, known as Holiday Cheer Inc. So he takes down the guys running it. He wraps them up, and some of the people that were working there are actually helping him there, and finds the mother of the sick child that we, we had been following along in the previous issue. Meanwhile, Gordon is basically following Batman's trail, the moments behind him. So he finds the crooks that are locked up in the cage that Batman escaped from, and then later the Holiday Cheer Inc. factory. Penguin is uh, getting shave and a haircut, right? Shave and a cut. And when he gets the bad news, and obviously he doesn't react very well, he tries to get rid of the re- remaining illegals in his other holdings, just shipping them off. I assume he's not going to kill them, but I could be wrong. But Batman gets her first. Batman then brings the mother to her sick child, and they are reunited. And then Bruce Wayne, he ends up sponsoring the illegals to become new citizens. And later we see one of them, and it seems like it's the mother, working at Wayne Enterprises behind a desk. Penguin is now in jail, and he goes to a room filled with attorneys where he sits at a table and grins. Not sure what that's about. Elsewhere, the little girl and her mother go to sleep on Christmas and Batman looks through a window and the and the girl waves and then we end on a closer look at the angel on the tree which which happens to be Batman so an overall happy ending my first question is what is with the scene of the attorneys and penguin do you have any idea what's going on there uh it, yes. oh okay yes very easy quick answer the, he's locked up in jail they showed him as a scared little boy crowded up in the corner of the jail cell, and then he's told he has somebody there. They lead him into a room. He's still in jail. There's a room full of lawyers that are basically going to figure out a way to get him off. That's why he's got a smile on his face. Yeah, I imagine it's not, he's not being, oh, he's like, he's been charged but not arrested yet, as if I might be getting my terms wrong, but he's not, like, in prison. He's been arrested, but he's not being charged. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think that kind of goes to show, goes back to him being untouchable in that whole aspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did this wrap up compare uh, for you to the previous issue? Well, I th- I think the wrap up for this issue, I mean, obviously this was a lot better because it's the actual end of the arc. So part of it has to do with this is part two of two, so it did wrap up a lot better. The last issue with Batman locked up in a cage, clearly that was a cliffhanger. Not really an ending, it was leading into this. I think as far as the overall ending of the story arc, I think it was actually a really good ending. We don't see very many heartwarming situations with Batman. There, and that's not to say there aren't few, you know, there aren't some here and there, but it's one of those things where, you know, you see a lot of the, like, the heart-filled moments of Batman and Bruce Wayne. The fact that, you know, Bruce Wayne's, you know, sponsoring all of these illegals to become citizens. The mother gets a job at Wayne Enterprises. Batman makes a point to check in on them. And then just so happens that he sees the girl. I don't think that that was intentional. I think he was just checking in on them and the girl happened to see him. And that's why she waved. But I think the moment where you see the the angel on the tree is actually Batman. 
I mean, that's a really good conclusion because the title is called Angel in Darkness, and that's essentially what Batman is. He, you know, he for a lot of people, he is like a guardian angel. You know, he's out there, you know, protecting them and saving them, similar to what a guardian angel would be. So, for someone who doesn't know anything about the way things go in America and everything they've they've come in contact with since they've come here is has been horrible to have this I guess beacon of hope which is Batman because of all the good things that happened once they came in contact with him makes complete sense of why the angel would be Batman so I think it would wrapped up really well yeah I, I definitely agree I also think that this issue flowed a lot better than the first one because in the previous issue there were a few jumps where I was a bit lost but this one i knew exactly what was happening so both you know writing and the art as well the the storytelling in that i think was better in this issue and yeah the it was a nice conclusion heartwarming for a change which is always nice i enjoyed it my final question is uh, do you think this story could have just been done in one oversized issue uh, rather than spreading across two issues it probably could have Batman The Dark Knight has never had an oversized issue. It could have easily been a story that could have been told in, probably not time-wise, but even with Detective Comics 27, they could have easily told this story a little bit more condensed than what it was in these two issues in Detective Comics 27, since that was already going to be a combination of a bunch of different stories. Christmas Element really didn't wouldn't have worked for Detective Comics 27, but... In this title, it made sense because well, at least the first issue came out right around Christmas. It would have been better if they would have planned this a little bit better and had it come out November, December, the issue that is the conclusion of the story that has the tree, that has Batman as the angel, would have been releasing right at Christmas or the week after Christmas because this is a fourth-week book. But I think, yeah, it probably could have been condensed down. I don't know that it could have been condensed. Like, if, if this was a story that they were going to do in Batman or Detective Comics that have a longer page count could have easily been done in either one of those and probably 30 pages instead of 23. But for the most part, I mean, yes, it was probably drawn out a little bit more than it needed to be, but I don't know how they could have achieved telling the story in one issue in this specific series. Yeah, I definitely think that it couldn't have been condensed into one. It would have had to have been oversized, so maybe... They could have put it into like an annual or something, but I think one of the reasons for this being like a two issue arc was to give Ethan Van Skyver the time to make sure he's got all the art done for his, the final arc of the book. I, yeah, I, I think that it would have worked in an oversized or an annual, just like, just like Joe said. Uh, frankly, while I like how it was wrapped up, I felt like this one, it was, I guess I'm just going to be contrary this entire episode, but I felt like this was the opposite of Damien and just the fact that this is what I would not want is that everything is wrapped up so neatly and it seems like everything just speeds so quickly towards the end, whereas maybe the, fir- the previous issue was slower, uh, but it was able to expound on things and you have to introduce people. But it just seems like once we start, we don't even stop at all. So it just seems so rushed. And I wonder if perhaps there was a way to find a median and, and maybe it would have been to make an, an oversized issue. But I, I did like how it ended. I like how it ended on a positive note. And, uh, of course, Penguin is yet again present. We, we've stopped counting how many times he pops up in comics now, which is disappointing. Well, that's just because Don's not here. Oh, I guess that's true. Don a bit. No, I think the thing is, 
of course, against what you're saying as far as you don't like how this was all wrapped up. And I said I did like how it was nice and wrapped up. The thing is, I, I think that for some things, it's okay to leave open. But other things, like, for example, a miniseries that is outside of what is normally being released should have some sort of conclusion. A story like this, on the other hand, that's in the main series, because it's only two issues, I'm glad it was wrapped up, because there was nothing in this that needs to be carrying on into the next issue or to the next set. I mean, this isn't like a story like Layman where, you know, he's leaving seeds as to what's going to pop up in his next story arc in the middle of the story arc he's currently working on. This isn't like that at all. This is just basically like, here's here's a two-issue story arc. doesn't have to do with anything. Just telling it. It probably has more to do with, like, what Joe said, where they needed to give Ethan Van Skyver a little bit more time to make sure that he could get everything done with the last story arc for the series. But I think for the most part, it just comes down to, you know, sometimes it's nice to have everything wrapped up real neatly like this, and other times it's not. But in some ways, I guess, you know, I mean, the other th- aspect of it is these are two completely different, I you know, uh, themes and when you think about it, because we've got, like, the blood and the violence in Damien, Son of Batman. Not that I think that any of it was over the top, like we've seen in the pages of Batgirl, for example, but, the, you know, the blood and gore, we don't get a whole lot of conclusion with... But with this, because it's a heartwarming story, because it's supposed to have, like, kind of, in some ways, try to make you feel good at the end of it, you know, there's not a whole lot of... I mean, there's horrible things that are shown, but not like the over-the-top violence that we see a lot of times in a lot of these other books. So I think that because of the short size of the story, I think it was fine the way the, the like the last half of the book essentially just went straight through and just showed you all these great things that were happening because, well, I guess I, you know, every once in a while it's nice to have something like that. But the other thing was I was going to say, kind of dealing with what you said as far as the speed of the book this was probably the, the the quickest book to read ever, even more so than the last issue. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that when, like Joe said earlier, with the the last issue, there was a, there were some jumps here and there. You had to kind of try to figure out where the jumps were leading to and connect the dots. With this, it was just straight through. It was very quick. I got done reading it in probably like less than thirty seconds, and I was just like, "Wow, that that went really really quick." All right, so Batman the Dark Knight, number 27. I'm going to give it a total of four out of five batterings. I'll give it four out of five batterings. I'm going to give it 3.5 out of five batterings. All right, so Batman the Dark Knight, number 27, gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move straight into our next book, Batman and Robin, number 27. Batman and Robin, number 27, written by Peter J. Tomasi, with art by Patrick Gleason. Two-Face has Erin on her knees with a gun to her head when he flips his coin. Tails and she's shot, head and she's burnt. The latter wins and Two-Face raises a jar of acid to Erin's face when he's shot through the shoulder. However, the jar shatters and some of the acid lands in Erin's eye before she falls into the same open grave as Batman. Two-Face's shooter was Kieran's backup and they open fire on Erin and Batman who are shielded by the tombstone. As they reload, Batman bursts out of the rubble, carrying Erin and Two-Face to safety. The trio enter a mausoleum for cover, and Batman begins taking out the assailants with tranquilizer darts, but there are too many. Two-Face flips his coin again and decides that the trio have a truce until they are out of danger, and they escape into the aqueduct tunnels through a disguised tomb. 
They are chased by Kieran's men and are fired up with a rocket launcher, which brings down the whole tunnel, with Batman and Erin on one side and Two-Face and their attackers on the other. We then have a flashback where we see how the McKillen sisters had Harvey doing their bidding. They ordered a failed assassination of Commissioner Gordon and need to know that he's there for them if they need him. Harvey's completely trapped between his duty and morals. But after a visit from Bruce Wayne, Harvey decides to stick to his morals and betray the McKillen sisters. We then cut back to the present day where Aaron and Batman emerge from a hatch in the basement of a bar and a TV on the corner shows Two-Face tied to a chair. So in the last issue, it was really kind of, at least I felt really kind of being pushed that Harvey had this kind of dirty side to him. I was wondering if that was like a new characterization that he'd always kind of had this dark side or if it was just because it was done from the perspective of the McKillen sisters. And I think that in this issue, it kind of shows that it was more their influence on him and him not kind of being trapped by his duty to have that darker side. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that he should have done what he did at the end of the issue earlier and just handed them in? I think the problem is that the last issue portrayed him as being partially dirty. This issue made it seem as if, you know, the reason why he had these dirty elements was because he was a public defender and his job was to try to get the people off that he was defending. That's what his job was. If he was better at his job than the district attorney or the assistant district attorney or whoever he was going up against, that was still his job. You know, he was doing what he needed to do. I'm not sure what the McKillen sisters meant when they said that they had him on retainer for the rest of his life. That makes it seem as if they have something over him, and that's why he's continuing to work with them. It was why if it was said that he was their family lawyer, I think. But see, that doesn't make any sense because they're showing him as a public defender. Why he would be a public defender and a private attorney for somebody else, that to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, that's not to say it can't happen, but I, I don't know very many public defenders who are also on retainer as a private attorney for somebody else. Unless, of course, they had something over him and they just he was just doing it. The, the thing is, even if he was the family attorney, even if he... Even if he was on retainer for life, they had to have something over him, either it be the money or whether it be, you know, some sort of blackmail or something. There was a reason he was staying with them because they, because he, he said, even when he, they showed him talking to Gilda, he, he said over and over again, he, you know, he's like, he doesn't know whether or not he should, you know, if he should do the right thing because, you know, it's against the, his job to really betray them and all this. And it's like, the thing is, eventually, we see, you know, once Bruce Wayne says, you know, we're going to, you know, a bunch of people are going to put you up for district attorney, and he decides that he's going to take it, and they show that last scene where Commissioner Gordon, Harvey, and Batman are all talking about taking down the McKillen sisters. That's leading into whatever actually happens that makes Aaron go on and on about how Harvey betrayed her and her sister. But I think that for the most part, the reason he was dirty is because that's just what, that's what a public defender is. They, they're portrayed as dirty even if they're not because that's their job. You know, their job is to get their person they're defending off no matter what because that's, that's what they're supposed to do. And they, they showed that by some of the scenes they showed where he was in court talking about how, you know, so and so 
there was a court case and the guy, the, the attorney, the district attorney said, well, this person murdered and, and stabbed this, this old lady and da, 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 da. And the case was dismissed simply because Harvey Dent said that Batman beat him up and threw, you know, tied him up and stuck him at the police headquarters, but never read him his Miranda rights. You know, I'm sure there's situations like that that happen all the time in Gotham with the way things run with Batman and things like that. But the most part is that's just how it works. So is he dirty? I don't think he's dirty. I think, you know, it's just he's being portrayed as dirty because that's part of his job. Yeah, I don't know if I would consider him dirty, but I think you have to be a uh, man. I don't know if I want to say it that way. There are certain people that are going to go for and be a lawyer for anyone that needs a lawyer, right? And I think that the Harvey Dent that we've always seen, at least the one that I've always seen, is this guy that's always going to defend the innocent, whether he knows that he knows they're innocent, he knows that they're, quote, good people, unquote. But this one just seems like, hey, I'm going to defend any particular person uh, and be sure, you know, that they can get off. And I'm especially attached to this family. Which makes it, that does color him a little bit dirty because uh, McKillen at one point does make that comment that, you know, he's the family attorney. And I feel like any of those mob attorneys, they do have a little bit of some some dirt under their collar there. So in, in that way, I think he is a little dirty, but he's just not the clean cut, I think, Harvey Dent that I've always seen. So there is a bit of a, a, a different dynamic to this character. I guess I'm just taking it two different ways because when you're a public defender, you can't be hired by people. You're assigned cases by the government to defend people who don't have money for a lawyer. So there's a breakup here with what the normal terms of what a public defender is and the way it's portrayed here because them saying that he's the family attorney, yes, would color him as one of the mob lawyers. That's what it would be. But the fact that he's shown in court as a public defender and the fact that, I mean, there's nobody who's going to be a mob attorney who's going to be, who's going to be told by Bruce Wayne, Hey, we want you to run for district attorney. That's not going to happen. A public defender, on the other hand, that could happen because they are already part of the system. So the family attorney thing, there's something about that. And I don't think it's actually that he is their actual family attorney. I think it more has to do with the fact that they have something over him and they have, and the family has dealt with him because of something they have over him. All right. All right. So Batman and Robin number 27, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five batterings. I will give Batman and Robin number 27, a three out of five batterings. Right now at this point, the story has gone on for, is this the third issue? This is, is this for this oh. particular story. Yeah, I think this might be the fourth. I think this has been going on since October. Oh, wow. Yeah, so my, my point in asking that is just to say that, man, it is, it's going on for a long time. And it's interesting because we've been used to these Batman and titles and really whatever the and is has sort of taken up maybe one issue or, or two. And this has gone on for a long time. It's really starting to drag for me. And I'm hoping that it, it starts to, to pick up a little bit. Not to say that I don't like Two-Face, but this is just interesting. I'm going to give it three, three out of five. All right, and over on the website, Derek gave the issue four out of five batterings, so that's going to give Batman and Robin number 27 a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batgirl number 27. Batgirl 27, and just the overall, I guess, warning or subtitle is that this is taking place during Gothtopia, 
Uh, so just be aware of that, listeners. And the title is called A Healing Curse. Writer Gil Simone, artist Robert Gill, and colorist Blonde. So we've got a new artist here. Welcome to Gothtopia, Gotham City, America's safest city, America's happiest city, and almost completely crime-free utopia where dreams come true. And everyone leads the life they want to lead. A place of sunny skies, safe streets, gleaming skyscrapers, and brightly costumed heroes. This is Gotham City. This has always been Gotham City. And if you want to survive, you have to believe. Cue somewhere over the rainbow. Angela Ramirez seems to have a happy life with a good job at an ice cream factory headed by Joker, and a family. But she has been having some terrible dreams and unsettling dreams that seem to really break through this perfect world. So what's that about? We then flash over to Babs, and, and she's holding her very own gothtopia Wooby Bear. You'll know who Wooby is if you watch Batman the Animated Series. She's woken up by her father, shouting that he's making some bacon. And he's going to feed it to uh, the fat cat Alaska if she doesn't get up. Now, she loves her mornings with her father, but... They actually have a full family. Her mother's out shopping, and James Jr., that blessed child, is helping at the homeless shelter. Sometimes she gets overwhelmed by all the blessings that she has. So her dad goes off to work, and she suits up as Bluebell. And she goes around the city on a sunny day patrol. She's suddenly ambushed by her apparent BFF, Sharice Carnes, also known as Daybreak, who... Seems rather similar to spoiler at this point, you know, goofball and clumsy. And it's too hot for sparring when the girls suddenly hear Ode to Joy playing on an ice cream truck below. Meanwhile, at the ice cream factory, Ramirez goes about a surprise closed inspection of the flavoring vats. Then a group of elementary students arrive for a tour. And one girl wants to know if they get free ice cream at the end of the tour. And Ramirez replies with tear-filled eyes, they can eat all they want. Back with the girls, Daybreak wants to get some ice cream, but Bluebell is clearly turned off by the Joker logo, and she doesn't want any. This is clearly a good idea, since suddenly the girls start hearing screaming from below, as anyone who got an ice cream has suddenly died. Bluebell tells the driver to call in the other trucks, but the radios are down. Again, thanks to Ramirez. There's some sort of maintenance going on there. And then she tells Daybreak to call GCPD and get them to pull other trucks from the road. But, shockingly, they are all around the park. Bluebell tries to single-handedly stop everyone from eating the ice cream, even punching somebody in the gut in order to get them to throw up. She learns from a fake jogger, and, and I say fake because who in the world stops in the middle of a run to get ice cream? that there are children at the factory. And at this factory, Ramirez hears about the poison ice cream. She dons a Joker mask, shoots her assistant, bang, bang, calls herself Mother Mercy, and goes about proving that there is something wrong with this city. Bluebell and Daybreak arrive at the factory where McKenna is happy to see them, so we know it's a utopia, but Bullock tells them that Mayor Cobblepot has basically commanded the uh, police force to get a sniper in place, and then he, he tells the girls to basically leave us out of their hands now. Inside, Ramirez tells a happy little tale of her family and how she lost them, though she can't quite remember all the details. But her family went roller skating, uh, but she was sick. She couldn't join them, and somebody killed them, 
and placed a weird smile on their faces. So if everyone can close their eyes and remember this moment, it's basically during death of the family when Joker had Bab Sr. tied up in the roller skating rink. So apparently Ramirez's family was, it all goes back to that story, was tied up and there they are. But for some reason, Ramirez still felt joy. How could that be? Whenever she sees a Joker logo, she feels something strange deep inside. The news channels wonder how this all could possibly be happening in this wonderful utopia. Daybreak blows up a cop car for a distraction. Mother Mercy is ready to spoon feed all the children some of the poison ice cream. The sniper is ready to fire. And Bluebell suddenly bursts through the window and disarms Mother Mercy. And Bluebell is suddenly awakened by the Joker logo flashing back to when her mother was tied up by Joker in the skating ring. Mother Mercy sees the expression of remembrance, but she's shot by the sniper. Eh. Bluebell wishes she were still dreaming because the truth of it all is too hard to face. Does Batgirl escape Gothtopia? Find out in Detective Comics number 28. Next, Bat Bloodsuckers in Gotham. Doesn't that sound charming? Whew, here we go. This is the first Goth, well, I guess second Gothtopia story that we've been reading. What are your thoughts on the changes from the real world to Gothtopia? Which worked for you and, and which didn't? So changes as in, like, example. We've got Cherise Carnes. Normally she's Nightfall. She's evil and sadistic and, they, you know, she fights against Batgirl. But now she's Daybreak and she's BFFs. And that's actually, you know, the letters that were used. BFFs with... Barbara Gordon. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on on something like that or other changes that pop up? Well, the thing with some of these changes was initially when the issue started, I I have to say that outside of the Gothtopia story that popped up in Detective Comics 27, this was the first one that I read out of the group of ones, even though this is actually the only one we're covering on the podcast. This is the first one that I read out of all of them. When it when I first started reading it, I really didn't have, I, I was really thinking, okay, I'm not real sure what we're getting at because the cliffhanger at the end of Detective Comics 27, that, that specific story for Gothopia was kind of weird and was making me wonder how this was going to tie into these other books. But yet again, we have another event that it doesn't really tie in. It's just showing what's happening with that character at a different point in time in this this universe. When it comes to the differences, initially talking about all of these great things that happened in the city and, oh, it's so great, and this lady works in an ice cream factory and it happens to be the Joker ice cream factory and, like, all of these different things, you know, I wasn't, uh, it was fine. But then when we cut to Batgirl, it was the first thing that was really weird to me was the fact that her room was really, really dirty in this, you know, great place that everything's so bright and so clean and happy. And her room's a, tr- a trash heap, and she's she's making a point that she has to find clean. <laughs> it was a little bizarre. That was weird to me. Now, when we cut to the scene of her interacting with her father and how everything's perfect with her mother and her brother, Obviously, everything's not going to be perfect with her brother and mother in the normal world because they're not they're not in the picture. But the interactions that she had with her father, even as cheesy as some of them were, I almost was hoping that that's what we would see in a normal comic yeah, with interactions agreed, with her agreed. father. 
So that just kind of upset me that knowing that this story was written by Gail Simone, and she has the capabilities of writing this this person, this, this character, in a loving relationship with her father, which she's always had up until the New 52, at least, it's just odd to me that that's what she chose to do. The other weird thing that the other weird difference here is the the weird interaction between her and Nightfall. Of all the characters to choose, why are we focusing on Nightfall yet again? Like this would have been an easy issue to have nothing to do with your previous stuff. Just tell a story about a happy character that is not been happy. But instead, we have to get thrown into this involvement with Nightfall and being reminded of how Nightfall has been stuffed down our throats for, you know, the last couple months. It's just, I don't know, I'm so sick of Nightfall. And I think that was just weird how, you know, she chose to use Nightfall in the story. Why? Because she's, she's best friends with her in this, in this weird utopia version of Gotham. Why would she be, like, she's not, yes, okay, I guess if you're looking at polar opposites, they're enemies, but it's not like Nightfall is her, is like the enemy for Batgirl. I guess if you look at Gail Simone's writing, I guess it is, so I guess that's why she chose to write her as a friend for Batgirl. But I didn't like the idea of bringing Nightfall into this regardless of how she was portrayed, I just didn't like the idea of having the character there because it was just reminding me of the fact that I dreaded this character in the other ones. I'll just stick with those changes. Overall, surprisingly, I really enjoyed this issue. I think the biggest change for me, which I wish we had more, is just how much fun she seemed to have doing what she did. And, like, it was bright and colorful. I actually really liked the costume, so much so that when... At the end, when she transitions, you see that kind of dream sequence of her transitioning back into her regular costume. I was like, really? Is that is that the Batgirl costume? It's not that dark, is it? And I had to go back and check. I was like, wow, she really does wear all black. Like, a character is supposed to be fun. So, yeah, I, I really like the costume and and just kind of how much fun she was having doing what she was doing. There was a couple of times when I was like, oh, here we go. This is Gail Simone. Like, when she punched the guy in the stomach. But then when I realized she was doing it to uh, make him throw up the ice cream that he'd just eaten, I was like, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. I think, you know, for the most part, I actually enjoyed this as well. And I was looking forward to, like I said, I was looking forward to Gothopia to see what they could switch up. There are some weird dialogue cues that come in and just don't necessarily make sense or, you know. I kind of had me scratching my head there. But I, I liked some of these changes. Yeah, first and foremost, the Jim Gordon and Babs. I, I loved that breakfast. And, and that is certainly what I I wish we could see every, every issue. Uh, and it's just a bummer because, especially now with what happened after Batgirl Murderer, you know, that it's just never going to happen. Some of these are, are very strange. I think, yeah. Daybreak turning into her, you know, BFF is is very interesting. But overall, I mean, it's just sort of taking its opposites, you know. And and in a perfect world, how would her how would her world be? But I didn't see Ricky still being her boyfriend. I'm glad we got rid of Alicia. So maybe that's a sign that maybe Gail Simone doesn't like her as much as well. I feel like uh, it would have been awesome to have Nightwing be her boyfriend. 
but we don't really know where he is anyways in Gothtopia because he didn't pop up in Detective Comics 27. So I guess we'll have to deal with Ricky. But I, I feel like there could have been somebody else for her to be BFFs with. Who knows? My next question was about the villain, Mother Mercy. Just just your thoughts on her and why the Joker mask, especially, you know, if if... I guess in my perspective, if you're having this realization of what's going on, why would you put on the mask of the person that killed your family? So, yeah, just thoughts on Mother Mercy. I don't really understand why she would wear the mask. If anything, it would make sense for her to have a frown face instead of the happy face. Just because every time she sees the smile, she's reminded of it, so why would she want to have the smile herself? To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense of why she would have that. The character in general, I don't know. Like, the problem is that everything that was portrayed in that one, that first part of the story in Detective Comics made it seem like nothing bad happens. Nothing. I mean, to the point where the heroes were saving people from burning buildings and helping direct traffic, it seemed as if that's what they were resorted to doing, and then picking up awards from a ceremony at Front City Hall because there was nothing for them to do. So, you know, there there was hinted that there was all these suicides, and she does mention that in this issue, but it's just weird to me how suddenly nothing bad happens, there were some suicides that Batman's investigating, but somehow we're led to this this situation where it's an extreme situation, more so extreme than just, you know, a simple, simple hostage situation. I mean, she has kids, not only is she sending out all of her ice cream trucks all over the city with poisoned ice cream that's killing everyone, but she's also holding kids hostage and going to force them to also eat the ice cream. And then she's also going to eat the ice cream herself and commit suicide. It's one thing if she was committing suicide and she did it, but why would she be trying to poison all these people, plus specifically deal with these kids and make them die with her? It's not as if she's, you know... She had one one child and one husband, and they died. Well, they made a comment about how, you know, they had smiles on their face when she had to go confirm their identities at the morgue, but it's just odd to me that of all the things that we've been told about this Gothitopia, and then the point that there was all these, you know, there was all these unexplained suicides recently, that they go to the extreme of, having this situation happen to the point where Harvey Bullock is saying, shoot Bluebell if she gets in the way. We need to take this girl out. Like, there was a lot of extremes that didn't make a lot of sense. And the problem is, because I don't know exactly what what is happening in this Gothitopia, what exactly it is because of what happened at the end of the issue last time where Batman's starting to remember things, but then it, it's it's all changing, and then he's the real version of himself and everybody else is the fake version. I don't know what's actually happening, so it's hard to say if maybe whatever is supposed to be happening as this idea is also happening here, and that's why it turns. But I don't know. It just felt like as if this was a really, really extreme situation for a place that doesn't have anything like this happen, like too extreme. I definitely had that thought while reading it um, with the, the ice creams being sent out. But then further in, I kind of justified it by the fact that she's one of these people who's starting to realize what's going on. And I mean, that's obviously where all the suicides are coming from, is people sort of realizing that this is some kind of bizarre dream, kind of fake reality thing, and getting confused and killing themselves. She obviously did take it to an extreme that so far, we I mean, I say so far we haven't seen, it's only been two issues, but it does seem exaggerated. 
and taken to a huge extreme. But I think it's justifiable by the fact that it was done by one of these people who's confused and knows that something is wrong and is trying to kind of combat that, I guess. But then when you said things like Burke saying, you know, shoot the hero if they get in the way, then that definitely kind of goes against that where it should all be idyllic and peaceful and kind of, hey, this never happens, you know, what do we do in this situation? And hopefully the heroes could handle it. But yeah, so I think some things definitely kind of stand out as a bit bizarre. I mean, the whole thing is strange, but some things don't seem to match up with what we know so far, but that could be either miscommunication between, you know, different writers trying to tell the same story, or it could just be that we don't understand it fully yet. Yeah, I I think that Mother Mercy... (laughs) Number one, the name sort of reminds me of the Weeping Woman for some reason. And, yep, I, I yeah, in uh, in Batwoman, one of those first arcs that we were doing. I have an issue with her putting on the mask of of Joker to look like him. No, she doesn't completely know what happened, but she's been getting flashes, and you know, obviously, she's troubled by the the joker symbol at the the ice cream factory and i just don't understand why you would put on that symbol because for me that is showing that you're like doing his sort of dirty like you're basically becoming the person that killed your family so i don't really understand that i like the way and this is what was happening in detective comics i like the way that it's starting to break through. Yes, people are living in this utopia, but some of them are, it's like not, they're not completely accepting it and it's starting to break down. And this is like Babs, you saw in, in the kitchen, she's thinking about, oh, what these wonderful blessings, but the look on her face is like something's not sitting right with her. And then it suddenly breaks through. And I like that this Angela or whatever her name is, Ramirez is, uh, is starting to like something's fishy here. But I, I totally agree that going to this extent and like starting to kill all these people just to show that it, it's not in a utopia it may not be the best way to go about it. I don't know what the answer would be as to how she could potentially do this, but I mean, it's just like an extreme, let's kill all these children and then myself situation. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I'm still sort of intrigued as to this gothtopia. And, and I think for the most part, there's a lot of good stuff going on in this issue, but, but some things kind of slip through and don't make as much sense. But I guess, again, we're back to a back roll going on in in her regular series, which this is about the third break that we've taken. So now we'll be back in Detective finishing up with her story here, and then we'll be back with a regular story in Batgirl 28. So that should be interesting. Those are the only questions I had for this issue. One thing I just wanted to throw out there, you know, earlier when we talked about Nightfall being her best friend in this utopia, of all the characters, it's odd that they would have chose Nightfall. And I said this earlier, but one of the things that made the most sense to me as to who they could have used, but they didn't, was Batwoman. Yeah. Or in this in this utopia, it's it, her name is Bright Bat, because Batwoman, for whatever reason, was is is not included in this in this crossover or story or whatever they they want to call it, since it's not really a crossover. But Batwoman wasn't included in this. But when they introduce all of the characters in Detective Comics, they show Batgirl and Batwoman coming out together, you know, approaching the situations together as if they could be possibly a team. So I think it's it's weird that they made a point to show that, you know, Batwoman's here 
in this utopia, but this could have been an easy way, especially since even with the stuff that Gail Simone's written, we've seen in the past that Batwoman does not like Batgirl and they don't get along. We've seen that in the past. So it could have been a very easy thing to do where instead of just using this character that nobody really likes, I guess, in my opinion, except for Gail Simone, instead of using that character, they could have used Batwoman and it still would have tied back to Gail Simone's writing. Yeah, I I think... And and I think you're absolutely right. And if you look at all of this stuff, all the changes that happened here, and it's all changes that in the back of Batgirl's mind she would want to have happened. So she would want to have a good relationship with her father and her mother be there and, and James not be messed up and to have a good relationship with the cops for the most part with McKenna. So it's kind of weird to think, well, in the back of her mind and in the deep pit of her heart, does she want to be best friends with with Nightfall, so that is sort of interesting to think about. Yeah, I, I don't get it, but anyways. Alright, Batgirl number 27, I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batteries. I actually, especially that page of her kind of first swinging into Gotham, I really like the art. I think it was very inconsistent, but I really hope that it was Robert, Jill, or Gil mm-hmm. gets more work to you know, keep practicing and get even better, because I really like some of the stuff. So, especially for that, but also because I thought the story was quite fun. I'm actually going to give it a four out of five patterns. Yeah, and I know some people have complained about, not on this show, but about the costumes, and I, I really like Batgirl's costume. I think it's pretty cool, and I'm going to give it 3.5 out of 5. I also have to say that, for the most part, a lot of these Gothitopia costumes, I know that Detective Comics and Batgirl are the only two that we're reviewing here, but it's also happening in the pages of Batwing, as well as Catwoman and... Birds of Prey, the issue 27s of those issues all have Gothitopia stories in them too. I do like Batgirl's costume design a lot, but I think that overall, the I think it was Jason Fabic again who did a lot of these concept designs for a lot of these costumes because I think I saw him posting some of them on Twitter and just overall really good. I have to agree with you guys on that. All right, so Batgirl number 27 gets a total of three and a half out of five bad ranks. Let's move into our next book, Batman number 27, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Pulo. The issue starts off in Tokyo in 1946, where we see a number of U.S. military guys listening to a very attractive girl singing a song, and she makes a hand signal that is in the shape of a bat, and we cut to Gotham City six years ago, where Batman is being torn apart by a number of bullets from the police officers. Um, as he's trying to figure out how to escape, everything that he tries is failing. We see that Batman's cowl has been pretty much destroyed. He put down some gas, but as it turns out, they knew that he was going to do that, so they in turn have gas masks for themselves. As he fights off cop by cop, it's not really working, so he decides to escape and try to get to the Batboat. He's trying to get in communication with Alfred, but he's not having a lot of luck. As he gets to the boat, Commissioner Loeb decides he's going to catch Batman once and for all and decides to blow up the boat. Well, Batman doesn't die, and instead they all start shooting at Batman yet again, leading him to go back into the building. Once he gets back into the building, he actually jumps into a pit, grabs an oxygen tank, and uses the force of the oxygen tank to propel him out of the building and far enough away from the lab so that he can have a moment to catch his breath, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we see a police boat with no police in it except for Gordon. Gordon tells him to get in the boat, and Batman is still trying to get in contact with the Batcave and Alfred, but it's not working. 
Commissioner Loeb yells at everyone to start combing the river, and Gordon says, your call, get into the boat, and Batman, who seemingly still has problems with Gordon, reluctantly gets into the boat. Gordon explains, because Batman's the lens on one of his eyes is actually shooting sparks that he's going to burn his face, so he tells Batman to take his mask off. After Batman takes Commissioner Gordon's glasses to confirm that Gordon is blind, he takes off the cowl, and he says, why should I listen to you? Why would you want to help me? And Gordon says, it's because of Bruce Wayne. Batman says, what? And we then see a story explaining why Commissioner Gordon was portrayed as this bad guy in the previous issue, because it was from Bruce's point of view, but now we get Gordon's point of view, where the same day that he got the uh, trench coat, he goes back to the tailor shop at night and goes into the back room only to find out that it's they're running an illegal dog fighting ring there, and a number of the police officers are actually, they're getting a cut of the take from a bunch of the fights. Gordon threatens to uh, report it to Loeb, and they say, well, Loeb's coming here. He gets a cut, too. And after he threatens to tell the press, they decide to, to let the dog sick Gordon, and they start betting on whether or not Gordon will survive or not. Gordon, who ends up having to shoot the dogs in order to make sure that they don't kill him, after that happens, he finds out that his partner was actually betting on him and everybody else was betting against Gordon, and he holds his gun up to his partner's head and says, uh, why shouldn't I do that? And then his partner says, well, because I bet on you to live, why don't you think about that? Then he reminded him about Gordon's daughter and son and reminded him that they might want to play with dogs too. We then cut back to the present time of the issue where he says he walked the beat and that same night he heard two gunshots and found out that Bruce Wayne was the person whose parents got shot on his beat and that's why he decided because Bruce Wayne is coming back to Gotham, he's decided that you know, maybe there is a chance that Gotham can be saved. Bruce Wayne's coming back to help the city be better. As Gordon's getting close, Batman tells him to stop the boat and gives him his glasses. And right before he's about to hit the dock, he stops the boat. We then cut to the Batcave where Bruce is now back and Alfred is talking to him. And we see Bruce trying to mess with one of his jammers. Alfred gives him his blended shake to give him all of his nutrients that he needs. And Alfred says that, you know, maybe you, you should accept some help from Gordon. And he goes, no, I'll take it under advisement, but I have you and that's help enough. Alfred then proceeds to say, I'm not sure that I'm actually helping you. I feel like you're actually trying to punish us all by making us watch you. You're not actually allowing us to help you. You're just making, you're, you're showing us what you're doing and then you're doing this and you're not actually accepting any help. You're punishing us by making us watch you take on the entire city, and you can't do it by yourself. We then see Batman in a pose that was made famous in Batman the Dark Knight Returns, watching Gordon, uh, actually specifically Barbara, in Gordon's house. Gordon goes out and looks out the window, but Batman's no longer there. Batman then figures out that the stuff that he gave Alfred to analyze to figure out where Helfrin, or Dr. Death, is hiding out, he figured out exactly where it is. It's in the old catacombs because there's a blackout currently, there's not a lot of people who go down there. He finds the lab and sees a military helmet that says Tokyo Moon, referencing the club at the beginning of the comic. Uh, we then see some blueprints that Batman says it's for a death or a doomsday device. And uh, suddenly we find out that it's, actu it's actually Edward Nigma who is actually 
he has set this all up, knowing that Batman would go and find him. We find out that it was actually Enigma who told the police about Batman because Batman was getting too close to to Edward Enigma, and in turn, he he tells him that he's going to do the device because he's going to rid the world and basically start from scratch. We then see an explosion go off and the catacombs start to be flooded as Batman is stuck inside. We then see a doomsday device in a balloon above the clouds and we see a huge monologue by the Riddler who's talking about how this is your part of the story that ends. Next up, a glimpse into the future of Batman Eternal. Alright, Batman number 27. There's a lot that happened in this issue. But the two things I want to focus on, well, specifically both things focus on the supporting characters. We've seen a lot of things relating to Batman and Bruce Wayne and building him up over the past couple issues, but as, as well as his point of view of different situations and things like that. But this is the first issue where it kind of delves into the point of views of some of the other characters. In the beginning, where we see Gordon helping Batman, and him explaining the reason why he's doing it is because of Bruce Wayne, and he's explaining his point of view of that situation that Bruce basically was holding against Gordon. It's interesting to see that, because it explains why, you know, yes, we were being made to believe that Gordon was this this dirty cop. Just as if the previous issue before that, we were led to believe that Lucius Fox was being dirty too, and then it was revealed in the next issue that he wasn't so dirty. This is becoming seemingly a trend amongst, well, at least this story arc. But let's talk about just, you know, what Gordon said in his, his, from his point of view, the situation that happened, and really his reasonings for wanting to help Batman. You know what? Compared to, I think, the the Two-Face one, which is, I guess, perhaps the trend that you're talking about, I, I thought this one was so well done. And, you know, it's just like life because every story has two perspectives or two stories attached to it, you know? And I think it's believable that Bruce, he saw this and he had his own mind and, and opinion of what happened and he held on to this forever. Which is unfortunate, right? Because he had this terrible negative opinion of Jim Gordon. And we were all wondering, oh man, what does this mean? What does this mean? And it kind of dragged us on for a couple issues. And then finally we get the whole story from, from Jim's perspective. And I think if there's one character that really is salt of the earth and someone that you don't really want muddied by anything, even to add depth to him, I think it's James Gordon. And I think it, it, it does a great job. I think this portrayal is just great just to see that story and to see how he tried to fight it and, and that he uses this almost like a cross that he bears. You know, this trench coat is just like this symbol that how he got it, you know, he was naive then, but he'll always remember, you know, what happened that night and, and how he's been trying to sort of root out that evil and everything. And hopefully, I, I think Batman maybe is not completely convinced but I think it's a step in the right direction, and, and I think it's wonderfully done, and, and I'm glad that we kept the true Gordon that we all know and love. Yeah, I, I mean, it does have that kind of taste of expositions, kind of, oh, hey, Batman, you know, man, I don't know, I'm going to tell you about a man that you might potentially not know. You know, it's an elaborate story, but I do think the story was good, and it kind of, I do tend to notice patterns in Snyder's writing. He seems to kind of follow these kind of structures a lot, but so far it's been working. I do think that it definitely 
at the very least, it really paid off in this issue. Um, I did enjoy that story a lot. I think for the most part, well, I have to say, first off, I really like the idea of them clearing up the air of making Gordon a dirt, or, you know, having Gordon be this dirty cop that was portrayed, and the way that Bruce was portraying him over the past few issues. I like how they cleared that up. I also like the fact that, you know, it was, it was actually Gordon who sought out, well, not necessarily sought out Batman, but helped Batman. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't as if, like what we saw in, for example, Batman Begins, where Gordon's this good guy and Batman decides to seek him specifically out because he's not dirty. It's a different take. And I, I like that. I think it's interesting. Now, the, the other one would obviously be Alfred. And Alfred's talking about the fact that, you know, he doesn't really feel as if he's being allowed to help Bruce. And he's, he's kind of upset for the fact that Bruce doesn't want to accept help, whether it be from him or Gordon. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the monologue that Alfred had during this issue, just talking about the fact that, you know, he, he feels as if Bruce is actually punishing everyone else that's trying to help him. That one felt to me a bit more of a uh, Michael Caine speech from Nolan movies, where it's kind of didn't quite make sense and it's kind of forcing this idea of kind of forcing ideas in my head, which I didn't really appreciate. I know I, that didn't ring with me as well. I think I understand it, but kind of like the only real person who's been trying to help him is Alfred. So unless it's just kind of a roundabout way of saying, listen, I'm trying to help, but you keep pushing me away and, you know, I'm trying to do this stuff for you and what you're doing isn't good for you or, or, you know, the people close to you. Uh, so in that case, it, it makes sense, but kind of it felt a bit broad. And I think because of that broadness and because of the kind of could stand for so much that it kind of got, it lost its potential message. I didn't, maybe I just didn't understand it. I wasn't reading too much into it or, or not enough. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I, I definitely get that Michael Caine uh, feel there. You know, <sighs> One thing that really hit me is just like, why, why blame Alfred whatsoever? I, I could definitely see, given the fact that Bruce had witnessed what he did with Gordon, you know, blaming him for whatever. But, but Alfred, I mean, just because he called, you know, the truancy officers or whatever, I, I don't think you could ever put him to blame. But it was like a heart wrenching story. And, and, and it also makes you wonder, like, well, is this kind of believable? Cause he said that he used all of his, he had like his life savings and he paid for this courier. And then Bruce never answered. That's terrible. But then I wondered, oh my gosh, shouldn't he be getting like buku amount of money since he works for the Waynes? <sighs> what do I think about it? It is an interesting thought. Why doesn't Bruce let other people get in? And I, I, I think that we always go on the idea that he doesn't want other people to be involved in this sort of these night actions because he out of care for them, right? Uh, but this is like a completely different viewpoint of of what he's been doing and i don't think i necessarily like it like i said i don't like the thought of punishing alfred because i think he's the one person that you can always rely on but yeah i feel like he had they kind of left that out it would have been maybe a better issue or not changed whatsoever so i i agree with joe i think joe kind of really stepped on it the um i don't really like those thoughts being put in my head i, I think i agree with him there 
Alright, so Batman number 27, I'm going to give a total of 4.5 out of 5 bed rings. I agree. I, I mean, I'm hoping this is a kind of return to form in a way. Uh, I really enjoyed this issue, and I hope it kind of stays at this quality, 4.5 out of 5 bed rings. I think that it, it certainly took a step up. I almost forgot that we're still in sort of zero year, and it keeps going on and on and on. And the river popped back up, so I'm not sure what I think about that right now. But what really saved it for me, I think, was Gordon's story. And had this been titled Gordon's Story, I would have loved it even more. But I will give it a 3.5 out of 5. All right. And over on the website, Josh Clayton gave the issue a total of 5 out of 5 batterings. So it's going to give Batman number 27 a total of 4.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last book, Batman and Robin, Annual Number 2. Batman and Robin, Annual Number 2, written by Peter J. Tomasi, with art by Doug Monk. Is it Monk? Monkey? Monkey? I never know. Anyway, this issue opens with Nightwing starting to tell the story of his first day as Robin, before we see Bruce exploring Damien's room in the present. In the crawl space above the ceiling, he discovers a box that says, No bats or butlers allowed. So Bruce has Alfred called Dick. Bruce doesn't open the package, but asks Dick to retell a story that he told to Damien, which inspired the parcel. We then jump back in time to Dick's first day as Robin. After a long day of school, Dick is ready for his first night on patrol with Batman. And after a quick change from Dick's own flying Grayson-esque costume to the Robin suit that we only sort of recognize, the dynamic duo head out. On this first night, Dick is allowed to do nothing but hide in the shadows and watch. Of course he disobeys and takes out an escaping thug, and much to his surprise, Batman is furious. Dick is then driven home and told he will never join Batman again. After an even longer day at school the next day, Dick tries to exploit Batman into letting him join him for another night, but Bruce says none of it. Dick then tells Bruce the information that he got from the thug from the former night anyway. Tusk is going to hit the Lexbank currency exchange that night at 1.30am. Bruce thanks him for the information, but heads out alone anyway. And a while later, Dick heads out alone to the Commodore Monetary Exchange, the main target for Tusk. He jumps straight in and starts taking out henchmen until Tusk makes his presence known by punching Robin in the face. Fortunately, Batman shows up in time to save Dick. Tusk and Batman start to fight, but when Robin gets a gun put to his head, Tusk gets the better of him and knocks him unconscious. We then cut to high above the Gotham City River in a helicopter, where Tusk throws out Robin to his death. But using his acrobatic skills, he flips round under the helicopter and kicks Tusk out into the air. After securing the helicopter, Batman forgives Dick for his disobedience and hands him one of the Tusks as a trophy. We then see a page of battles between Tusk and Dick, before one day he stops coming after him, and Dick believes he either gave up or someone else got to him. Dick then opens the package from Damien and finds the other Tusk. So what I kind of gathered from this issue, I spoke to someone else about it, and they went, no, no, no. And then they kind of looked back at it again and agreed with me that I think Damien ends up killing Tusk. I think, okay, well, I think there was a problem, and the reason why there was a problem was because there was there was an art issue. It was shown that Robin, not distinguishing between one or the other, Robin actually grabs the unbroken Tusk on Tusk, and then the next panel shows Tusk in jail, and Robin walking away, all you see is his feet. I looked at that panel a couple times, because I was thinking to myself, that's weird, why is it 
why is Dick Grayson grabbing the other tusk and locking him up? But then the narration is saying that he doesn't ever know what happened to Tusk. And basically, my understanding is that 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 uh, the narration was supposed to be right there because it was actually Damien who was grabbing that tusk, essentially breaking it off, and then in turn also having him locked up in jail. That's why he has the tusk, and that's why it's in the box. The problem is that the art itself shows the exact same Robin costume on Damien and Dick Grayson, except for in the beginning of the issue. So I think that's where the breakdown was, was that during that time when Robin is getting Tusk and locking him up, that's supposed to be Damien, but for whatever reason, he's in the costume of Dick Grayson, which obviously should not be. But isn't that out of sequence? Like, he's grab he's grabbing the Tusk, and then below is the panel that he's locked up right beside Croc. Right. That I would assume that he was he found Tusk, was beating him up, broke the Tusk, and then got him to jail. Yeah, but in the top half of the page, it's saying, you know, we had many encounters over the years, and we fought many times. And then it says, until one day I never heard from him again. But he's in Arkham, I'm assuming it's Arkham. And he still has, he, I mean, he obviously still has the Tusk. The impression that I got from it was, you know, because he obviously, he, he, uh, Dick will keep beating up, putting, putting him in jail or in Arkham or, or wherever, and then he'll break out, come after him again, until one day he he just never came back after him. And then because of that last panel, you see he obviously has the tusk still in his head, uh, and then you cut to the next page where he's opening a box with the tusk in. It kind of implied to me that, because, I mean, he didn't stop coming after the one tusk got taken off, so why would he stop if the other one, if anything, he'd be even angrier? I, I see your, yeah, no, I see your point, like, yeah, why would he do that? But I feel like the, the Damien that grew up in this book ended that, that sort of killing spree. So I feel like maybe he is still alive, but I don't know where he is. I think, again, I agree with you. I think, you know, that's, I can see, I can see how you're seeing it. Like I said, I had to look over that panel a bunch of different times to try to, or those couple panels to try to figure it out because I was trying to figure out, well, why would Dick Grayson be saying, where is, where is Tusk at if he locked him up in jail? And that's just how I interpreted it. But I mean, I could see how you're seeing it too. Yeah. I mean, that was the the main thing I had. I just thought that was really strange. I guess, have we ever, we haven't seen this story in the new 52 yet. I guess we've kind of seen similar things, obviously not with this Tusk character, but similar stories. Did you like this kind of new interpretation of Dick Grayson's first day as Robin? I know that there's going to be plenty of people out there who are going to say that they hate this because, again, it's redoing something that we've been shown in the past. But to me, I've gotten over the idea of believing that somehow everything's going to revert back to the way it was before the New 52. I've just, you know, come to the acceptance of, you know, this is how it's going to be. So we have to just, we have to deal with it. So if they want to show this as Dick Grayson's first day, is it a great first day? Uh, I don't know. I mean, is it is it is it memorable? No, I don't think it's memorable. I'm not gonna rem- I'm not gonna remember this until they they decide to say, well, here's Dick Grayson's first day. You know, five years from now, 
And I'll probably sit there and be like, yeah, okay, wasn't this, didn't they already do that? And then I'll go back and read it, but I'm probably not going to remember this. He pisses Batman off and Batman fires him and he gets back in Batman's good graces by lying to him. I, I don't know. I mean, like, is it, is it that great? No, but at the same time, the, the, the few things that I did like was, or were the, the moments where Dick Grayson is cutting the, you know, cutting the jokes about the bank because that, 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 you know, falls in line with how Robin was back in the day, you know, when he was first came in, he was the comic relief. I did like the comment that Batman made when he, why I like the, I, I like them showing the crazy, uh, Nightwing blue outfit. That reminded me a lot of the disco Nightwing yeah. costume. That was kind of interesting to see, even if it was, I mean, it was meant to be there. But I like Batman's comment where he said, I'm not out there trying to gain attention. I'm trying to not get any attention. And I'm just thinking, well, that's kind of funny because originally when Robin was around, he wore bright yellow. So, yeah, okay. And then when they actually show his costume, okay, it wasn't bright yellow like like, you know, Robin was originally when he came into the comics, but I, I just, there was like these little things here and there that I liked, but it's not very memorable. Yeah, one of those people, shout out to Donovan. <laughs> uh, he said that he hated it and you're wrong. That's what he says verbatim. Dustin, you're wrong. That's the guy. <laughs> Let's see here. Did I hate it? Did I dislike it? You know, it's, I, I see where Donovan disliked it because he talked to me a little bit about you know batman year three and such and of course i've i've read robin year one and yeah this is a completely different take and no it's not as good as robin year one my main issue with this story is the fact that it's a batman and robin annual and i kind of wanted it to be more about damien and maybe like some story or some mission that we had never seen him in and i feel like this would have been a better place or this story would have been better placed in a nightwing annual or something like that you know before dick grayson gets killed off yeah there's some good moments in there but i don't know i I guess you know what it gets at is is sort of this dysfunctional relationship that the robins seem to have with batman because i think that's really what you see the entire time Dick Grayson is so looking forward to, you know, his first and second night out, and he blows it. Well, first of all, he's told you can't do anything, basically, which is what happens to poor Tim Drake all the time in his beginning. And then he blows it by helping Batman, and then he's not allowed to do anything, and then he tries to trick Batman, but that doesn't work out. And it's just, it's just all over the place. So I, I do like that you kind of see this dysfunctional relationship. And I think that's the heart of the Batman character that even though he takes on these, these sidekicks, he still has a deep concern for them and still thinks he's the only one that knows what he's supposed to be doing. But I feel like I would have enjoyed getting a Damien story rather than a, a Dick Grayson story. But. I think there were some cute moments. And I'm sorry, Donovan, but I, I didn't completely hate it. But your feelings are, you know, they're known and they're put on here on the show for posterity. I definitely didn't hate it, but I do think it should have been done better. But I think for an origin story, like if, if they were going to tell something like this, I'm glad it was in an annual where if you wanted to, you could ignore it. And it was done in a single issue. It wasn't dragged out. 
the fact that he disobeyed Batman kind of brought me right back to that Robin special we did on the Batman Universe specials, just because of the amount of times that the Robins would disobey Batman and just depending on kind of which one it was, he'd either forgive them and be like, okay, yeah, you're Robin, or no, you can never be Robin ever again. But yeah, I, I didn't hate it. I actually quite enjoyed the Tusk character, I think just from a, a visual standpoint, but I don't think we'll ever be seeing him again. But yeah, that's all I had. I mean, Doug Monk, I know of. This seemed to be a bit cleaner. I, I didn't check, but maybe it was, it was inked by Mick Gray because it had a kind of Patrick Gleason-esque style to it, but I think it might have been the inking. But I, I, that's, I didn't check. I probably should have. <laughs> but it fit the, the book well. So that's all I have. Has Tusk appeared before? I just wondered if he appeared pre-New 52. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. All right. Batman Robin Annual Number 2. I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. And I agree with you once again and give it a three out of five batterings. I, yeah, I guess this is the first time I'll agree with my two cohorts at the same time and give a three out of five. All right. So that's going to give Batman Robin annual number two a total of three out of five batterings. All right. So now let's get into the Bat Book Review Recap, which we mentioned a bunch of other rev- books that have been reviewed over on the website that aren't of these from the past three weeks, so that you can possibly take a look at them and see if you think they are any good. All right, so first up, we have Beware the Batman number four. It was reviewed by Chris Carnes, and he gave the issue four out of five batterings. Next up, Harley Quinn number two was reviewed by Benjamin Scott, and he gave it 4.5 out of five batterings. Next, Earth 2 Annual number two, reviewed by Corbin Poole, and he gave the issue 5 out of 5 batterings. And finally, for those of you who are looking into possibly older books to read, we have started a new feature. It's called Retro Review, and Chris Carnes, is, he's starting this the series, and basically the idea of it is that we're going to be focusing on specific elements that are happening in the New 52 and how they deal with things from pre-New 52 slash just past Batman. So the first one is Retro Review Focus of Dr. Death, which is a review of Batman number 345 and Detective Comics number 512, both from 1982, which is a two-part story arc involving Dr. Death. So if you want to learn more about Dr. Death, you can read the review or read those two issues since Dr. Death was appearing in the pages of Batman. With that, that is all of the books that we have on the website that were reviewed, so we're going to throw it over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. And welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm that English guy, John. So, a new year and a new chapter of the No Man's Land series that we are currently reviewing. This is book two, which was released by DC a few years ago. You can still buy it on Amazon and on eBay, and I highly recommend you go and pick it up. And it covers everything that was released for the No Man's Land series as the second part. In this episode, we're looking at 
Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 119, Shadow of the Bat 87, Batman 567, and Detective 734. And the last two issues are particularly interesting because these are the two issues that introduce Cassandra Kane to the DC Universe. A few things that I know Don is very keen about. These were written by Greg Rucker and Kelly Puckett, and it features art by Mike Dieto Jr. and Kelly Puckett. So, are we going to kick off 2014 with a fantastic opening to Batman No Man's Land Volume 2, or are we going to start it off with a very damp firework? Let's find out as we dig into Batman No Man's Land Volume 2 Part 1. We open in winter. Penguin and Two-Face are striking a deal to take Batman's land. We then cut to Batman and Oracle, who tells him about an event happening in Two-Face's territory. We then move to Jim Gordon, who decides to take Penguin's territory from him. It then moves back to Two-Face, who bribes KGB Beast to give him access to a female prisoner who will help him take the city. He forces her to fight Rhino. Batman arrives and rescues the girl. But it turns out to be a trap, and she knocks him out. Shadow of the Bat opens with all hell breaking loose. Two-Face attacks whilst Penguin tries to take Batman's territory, and the police try to take Penguin's territory. But Batman is nowhere to be found, forcing Batgirl to try and hold the area. She does so just, but knows the territory will eventually be lost. Meanwhile, Batman wakes up after being drugged by the female prisoner. They talk, and she reveals that she was just meant to keep him talking. Batman escapes, but it's too late, and he discovers that his territory has been lost to Two-Face. Batman opens with Batgirl being told off by Batman. It then moves to Babs teaching a girl words when they are interrupted by Jim Gordon. It then moves to the girl stopping an assassin from killing Jim Gordon. However, the assassin escapes. We then cut to Batman, who's caught up with Harvey, who tells him not to force him to act to Harvey, who is tied on the bed. Meanwhile, we discover that the girl is in fact the daughter of David Kane, sent to kill Jim Gordon. David Kane is waiting for her at her home, and she evades his shots, hitting him. We then have a flashback showing her upbringing. She then knocks her father out of the window, saying stop to him. Detective Comics opens with Batman discovering David Kane is back. It turns out Kane was saving her father's life. And her and David Kane share a moment before Batman uses a batarang to hoist them both up in the air. However, his daughter slips from David's grasp. However, Batman saves her and asks her about her life, discovering she can't speak. However, they talk using fighting techniques. Batman finds David Kane and they fight. Meanwhile, David Kane's daughter confronts Two-Face. However, before it goes, before the fight between David Kane and Batman goes too far, David's daughter stops the fight, and we see that she in fact took away Two-Face's coin. And the issue ends with Oracle showing her all the Batgirl items that she has. So that's those four issues. They are quite brief. Not much happens, to be honest, in in any of them. It kind of sets up the scene again, very much like the first couple of issues in Volume 1. 
and you kind of feel like it's not necessarily progressing the narrative, but it's giving you essential background information, and you're finding out what's going on in Gotham City at the moment. It was interesting to see all the machinations going on. There's quite clearly some interesting politics going about, especially Two-Face betraying the Penguin. I thought that was actually quite a clever move by Two-Face. He manages to double his territory whilst also limiting Penguin's power, which certainly is going to be interesting as we go along to see if Penguin looks to get revenge on Two-Face and work with Batman. I thought the art in all of them was very good. It was very nice. There was, in the second issues with Batman and Detective Comics, it was slightly cartoony, but I didn't particularly mind it. It's a style that becomes a bit more popular as we go on. It's something that runs through a lot of the issues more and more, but I don't particularly mind it. I think it's quite nice. It's not as gritty and as realistic as Legends of the Dark Knight or Shadow of the Bat, but it's slightly different artists, although, to be honest, if I was going to say I prefer anything, I'd probably prefer Legends of the Dark Knight and Shadow of the Bat. However, I don't think there's any real issue with the artwork at all. So, there's probably one thing that everybody wants me to talk about, and that's the first arrival of Cassandra Kane. And... It's a nice arrival. I don't think it's anything spectacular, but then I don't think there was anything spectacular to be expected, to be honest. It sets up the character, it sets up her background nicely, and it sets up her role within the Batman universe. We get a hint of where this is going to be going, so Helena will no longer be, obviously, Batgirl, and we know that eventually Cassandra Kane takes over, and we are prepared for what's going on in the future and I thought it was quite nice there were bits where it was a little confusing in places I did lose the thread of the story but it's not noticeable too much I did just have to go back and read a couple of panels and it sort of folded itself into place and it's certainly well worth rereading to be honest if you want to go back over it anyway so Overall, I'd give these stories 4 out of 5 Batarangs. I thought they were both very good. Yes, they are prequels and they set up the storyline um, going forward, but I thought they were excellent prequels and they were certainly something that I would highly recommend people pick up if they have the opportunity. If you're a Cassandra Kane fan, of course you're going to have Batman and you're going to have Detective Kite, but again, I thought they were very, very good and I would highly recommend all of these issues. So it's been a very strong start for Batman No Man's Land Volume 2. Will it pick up next episode? Come back and find out. And we will take a look at those remaining issues. You can also leave your comments and reviews if you want to on the comment section underneath this podcast or underneath the Batman comic podcast itself. And I'm always more than welcome feedback. So... That's everything for this episode. I've been John. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Alright, that was Batbooks for Beginners. Be sure to check out the individual feed for Batbooks for Beginners to catch up on all the past episodes leading up to the current story that John is currently reviewing. Let's jump straight over into our listener Q&As. We do have a decent amount to cover, so let's get into them. (laughs) Hey boy, did you get a wrong number? 
First one comes from Corbin. He says, In Detective Comics number 27, I know you guys told us your favorite art pages, but I don't remember if you gave us your favorite story. Which story was it? My my favorite story was Sacrifice by Barr. It was a very emotional story. I did enjoy Hero by Tomasi. I thought that one was fun. And I didn't notice the Bat logo until you guys pointed out. I buy them digitally and zoomed in on that page. 27 by Snyder and Murphy. I love Murphy's art, but the story had me lost and confused. I had read that one the most, just trying to understand it, but it didn't make sense until you guys reviewed it, so thank you so much for that. I'm anxious to see what parts of the story are Easter eggs to future stories. It seemed to emphasize Bluebird and Lark, so those are my best guess as to paying off later. Also, I heard an announcement that Higgins was leaving Nightwing. As of now, they haven't told us who the replacement is, but I'm kind of glad. I didn't care for his Nightwing run. In issue 19, he finally began a story where he would not cross over, finally getting to tell a story on his own, and it was great. Until the last issue of the story arc, I didn't like the annual he wrote. I felt like I wasted $5. And now his current arc is being changed because, again, Nightwing will deal with the repercussions of Forever Evil. I do understand where Stella is coming from uh, on it currently not tying into Forever Evil. I feel like if they tied into Forever Evil, show Nightwing's side of him being captured by the Syndicate and show him in the chair, then have him flash back to Chicago explaining how he got to this point, and Higgins could go back and forth between the story he wanted to tell and what Jeff Johns is doing. I felt like it would have been a, been a better way to go about it. Anyways, I'm done ranting. What do you guys think? Do you like Higgins' run, or do you feel like he should have gone in a different way? I just feel like he's being written as a sidekick instead of someone who has his own series, and it's nearly at his 75th anniversary, and that bothers me. Okay, so let's go back. Favorite story from Detective Comics. I, I'm pretty sure that I said that my favorite story was Hero by Peter Tomasi. I thought that was a good story. I liked the, the fact that the Bat family actually had a good interaction amongst them. And, you know, the art's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I think the way that the art was formatted was really good. So that would probably be my favorite of them. Yeah, I obviously had to drop out by them because of technical issues. But I think my favorite story probably was the... Peter Tomasi story, mostly because I thought the art was gorgeous. I unfortunately can't remember the artist's name at the moment, but I'm definitely going to try and track down more of that artwork. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to go with that one. Again, I, I did, I, I think because that was the anniversary one, yes, that would be the one. But I do and did really enjoy the intro to Gothtopia and just sort of starting that, that story off. All right, so next up, let's talk about Higgins. You know, we talked about this earlier when we talked about the announcement that he was leaving the series and that James Tinian is coming on for the one issue before they cancel the series. So a lot of that has already been discussed. But as far as his, as far as his run, I think a lot of it, like I said earlier, is above average. We gave it above average ratings. There was some things that, yes, it does feel as if he's being written as a psychic at some points, but once he made it to Chicago and they started building his own little universe in Chicago, I think they were actually doing a really good job, or I, I should say Kyle Higgins was doing a really good job. So with that, I think I think that aspect of it was fine. When he was part of the circus and the re, you know where he randomly is just not around in Gotham, and they're using the circus as this you know his supporting cast, I didn't really enjoy that. I also didn't enjoy the idea of them just completely eliminating the entire supporting cast with Death of the Family, with the circus being burnt down in Amusement Mile and stuff like that. So, I mean, 
for the most part, there was there was points that I wasn't very pleased with, but ever since he came to Chicago, I've actually really enjoyed the series. I also have been enjoying it. As I said during this latest Nightwing review, I, I think that, you know, there were some stories that were a little touch and go. But I don't feel like he's been a sidekick whatsoever. I think it's great to have him strike out on his own and and really make his own name for himself. And I feel like that's something that he's been doing because there's not been a bat shadow looming over him. And even contrary to, you know, him being a psychic, I feel like it's great he's getting his own supporting cast now instead of just going off of whatever Batman had. So I, I think that this was new and, and great, but I'm disappointed that it's going to be over with. <laughs> and I just wonder what's going to happen next. All right, next one comes from Sam. It says, Hi, guys. Thank you for answering my questions on the last podcast. I have quite a few questions. I have recently been reading some of the New 52 and wound up buying and reading Batman and Robin Volume 1 Born to Kill. I thought this was quite memorable story and didn't know if you guys have ever read this, and if so, did you enjoy it? I also stumbled upon Earth 2 Volume 1, The Gathering, and it was surprisingly good. I didn't know if you have read that and enjoyed that too. Next question. In Night Night's End, Batman... Nightwing and Robin are fighting Jean-Paul on the Gotham Bridge, where Jean-Paul is knocked into the water. He reappears within a page or two. Not enough time to change costumes, but his costume is suddenly red instead of blue. Was there any sort of an explanation for this? Also, did Prodigal ever happen in the New 52? Nightfall did, but in the New 52 timeline DC released, Prodigal was never mentioned. And for my closing thought, I have a crazy explanation for how Damien could be alive. Perhaps when he was paralyzed in the fight with Flamingo and was returned to his mother to be fixed, Talia could have sent back a clone and the real Damien could be alive. And maybe there is a, some chip or something connecting Damien and the clone's mind so Damien has all the memories after he was returned to the manor. Anyway, love the podcast. Keep making great episodes. Okay, so Sam, you got a bunch of questions here. Some of them we're going to answer on this podcast and some of them we're going to wait to the next podcast to answer because they're more specific and will involve a little bit more uh, research. Your first question regarding Batman Robin Volume 1 Born to Kill, we didn't specifically read the trade paperback, but we did review all of the individual issues that made up that trade paperback during the beginning of the New 52. The Batman Robin Volume 1 Born to Kill, we reviewed, it was, I mean, I believe that collects the first six issues of the series, at least, or maybe it was the first four, four or six issues of that, of that. A lot of times we don't, we, I mean, we never really review trade paperbacks unless it's actually, we, we have a separate podcast on the Batman Universe specials. It's called TBU Collected, which reviews a lot of the collected editions of stories, but we haven't reviewed that one specifically. But the individual issues that make up that trade paperback, we did review. You'd have to go back about two and a half years to September 2011 when the New 52 started to hear our reviews of that. So that's the answer for that one. For Earth 2 Volume 1, I I personally have read, I've been reading some of Earth 2 scattered here and there. I've been picking it up a lot more regularly lately, but when it comes to the beginning of Earth 2, I have not really read that much of it, so I don't have an opinion on that. I don't know if anybody else has read that, though. I read the first issue, hoping for like a Justice Society type thing, which it wasn't, unfortunately. So uh, it didn't really strike me, so I haven't looked at it since, although I have had a lot of good things. So 
it's something that I'm interested to go back and look at. I read the first couple arcs, I think. I was a little disappointed because of the, the huge publicity they were doing about, you know, making Alan Scott gay. And then in like the second issue, they kill off his lover. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. But it, it was great to at least pull in. It wasn't exactly Justice Society, but they were sort of making, I think, getting there with that lineup of people. And it was, it was cool to see the different people. But I ended up dropping it after maybe the second or third arc. Yeah, Tom Taylor took over the book. That's kind of around the time that I started picking up the series because I never really read the Injustice Gods Among Us series, but I was seeing a lot of really good things about it. So when he took on Earth 2, I jumped on the book and started reading it. It was actually really good. And if a really good story, because Batman really hasn't been a part of it, but the Earth 2 annual that just came out that I actually mentioned during the Batbook Review recap, which received five batarangs on the website that actually is a really good issue and it involves it's it's very batman heavy and i would suggest if if you have if you enjoyed earth 2 from the beginning specifically because you said you read volume one i can't wait to see what you think about some of the more current stuff once uh the writers change on the series now, as to your question about Night's End and Prodigal and the timeline and and Nightfall, we're going to have to hold off on those questions until the next episode because some of those are very, very specific when regarding specifically Jean-Paul and his costume change. I'll have to actually reference that and look back at those issues to actually understand what you're talking about and get an answer for you there because it's not something that's... I just know from memory, it's been a while since I've actually read through some of those issues. As to whether or not Prodigal was ever part of the New 52 timeline, when you say that the, that DC released a New 52 timeline, I, to this day, have never actually seen a New 52 timeline, so I don't know which one you're referring to that uh, that plots Nightfall on that. Prodigal is probably not going to be mentioned on it because it wasn't a huge event within the Bat Books, it was an event, it happened after Nightfall, but the, the big aspect, I mean, the big events that they're going to mention are, Prodigal's not going to be up there with Prodigal. I'd probably uh, stick Prodigal in the same line as like Batman Legacy, and uh, there's a bunch of different ones, but Batman Legacy is the one that I put it on lines with, where it was a, it was a big story, but it wasn't big enough to do that. Nightfall and No Man's Land were like the largest Batman events that happened in the Bat Books, over the past 75 plus years up until, you know, we get into, you know, past the year 2000, those were the two really big events that involved a lot of different books. So that's that question. As far as Damien, that, that's entirely a possibility, a possibility. Uh, who knows whether or not Damien is alive or not. Uh, I don't want to hypothetically think about Damien being alive any more than we already have because we've done it a lot going back to last year when Damien first died. We talked about it a lot, so I don't want to rehash that too much. I would just suggest you listen to the episodes from a year ago when we talked about a lot of the stuff relating to Damien. But for the most part, yes, he probably will come back. We just It's not any specific set time. And as as long as... You have to look at it like this. Damien will most likely come back as long as there's a reason to bring him back. And if the reason is the popularity gets mainstream, uh, because for the most part, Damien's never really been in any media incarnations except for one random episode of Batman Brave and the Bold, which, by the way, that series referenced all kinds of random things from DC that not a lot of people would get. Um, the 
TV or the the movie that's coming out in May from from Warner Brothers, the DC, the new DC animated film is Batman Son of Son of Batman, which deals heavily with Bat Damien. So well, it's all about Damien actually. So the the big aspect of it is if Damien actually becomes much more mainstream popular, mainstream popular instead of just comic popular, meaning people who aren't picking up comics know who Damien are and like Damien then that's probably when we're going to start seeing him come back. All right, with that, let's get into the next one. Dre says, Will you guys review World's Finest issue number 19? Finally, Huntress meets Batman. Maybe Helena Wayne will become the next Robin, or at least show up in more Bat books. She is his daughter, after all. Well, kind of. Well, I can tell you we're not reviewing World's Finest. We have reviewed some issues in the past. This is another one of those issues where it would be great to get a review on the website for it, specifically because it is that interaction with Huntress and Batman. But for the most part, outside of Huntress being the character from the original Batman universe, Huntress has very little to do with the rest of the Bat books. I don't know if it will eventually tie in. I, I, I have high doubts because she's not from... Earth Prime that she's probably not going to be part of the Bat Book. She's probably just going to continue doing her stuff in World's Finest. But I, I just leave it at that. You know, for now, we're not covering it. There has been issues we have covered in the past, but this is not going to be one of them. All right, finally, Chris says, Some trivia regarding Detective Comics number 27. Brad Meltzer's updated take on the case of the Chemical Syndicate wasn't the first time the first Batman story was retold with a more contemporary take. Back in Detective Comics number 387, cover dated May 1969, which celebrated Batman's 30th anniversary, editor Julius Schwartz commissioned an updated version of the very first Batman story written by Mike Friedrich entitled The Cry of Night is Kill. The 60s story wove in a moral about perceptions and prejudices, along with bit of pop culture. Batman mentions Janis Joplin. Then, a couple of decades later, Detect Comics number 627, cover dated March 1991, which celebrates Batman's 600th appearance in Detective Comics, had two updated takes on the case of the Chemical Syndicate. One was written by Marv Wolfman with pencils by Jim Parro. The other was written by Alan Grant with pencils by Norm Brayfogle. This is this 80-page issue also reprinted earlier stories from Detective Comics number 387 and Detective Comics number 27. A nice bit of bad history in one book. As usual, great show and keep up the good work. Well, again, Chris, great job in finding that information. Hopefully some readers out there will then go find these issues and take a look at them. Also, as I mentioned, this is the same Chris who's writing the retro reviews. So Chris has a lot of extensive knowledge when it comes to back history of specific stories. So keep a lookout on the website for specifically retro review as we focus on some of the events that are happening in some of the books. Alright, so with that, that is all of the listener Q&As. I'll remind everybody, if you'd like to leave your listener Q&As, head over to the website and leave your comment in the comment section on the podcast post, or email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. Just because we had four listener Q&As this episode doesn't mean we don't want your listener Q&A for the next episode, and please don't think that someone else will leave a listener Q&A if you don't. So, with that, I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the latest news related to movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and of course the comics. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman Universe. Be sure to check out all of our other podcasts, including Backdoor Oracle, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake Podcast, and the Batman Universe Taking Flight. 
Also be sure to check out the Bat Fans and the Batman Universe podcast, as well as commentaries, as we're releasing new episodes all the time. In addition to that, you can leave us reviews on iTunes, and you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns. I remind everybody, we haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to say it now, we're going to start putting another call out for more people who are interested in doing reviews on comic books. We have a number of books that are covered, but then there's a number of books that aren't covered. And with the .5 on hiatus until further notice, there's a number of books that we'd like to be getting covered on a monthly basis that aren't being covered. World's Finest would be one of those issues that would have been great to have reviewed, but it wasn't. So we're looking for people out there who are either reviewing stuff on other sites and would like their stuff to get a wider audience, or people who aren't reviewing anything anywhere else and want to start reviewing stuff. Send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and we'll get you hooked up with some books to review. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Jai. And just a little uh, pimp for myself that uh, a shipper special for Macro to Oracle will be out on wonderful Valentine's Day, so be sure to check that out. This is Stella. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys in two weeks. online and I was or the other day I was recording the normal podcast and I don't know how often you guys listen to the normal podcast but there's some eh, playful banter between Melinda and John most of the time and I, I I got off the podcast with them and I was doing something on Facebook and I happened to just get onto John's account and on Facebook and I happened to see that his his girlfriend his current girlfriend looks an off, awfully like Melinda. Ah.